Welcome to the Strangers and Pilgrims podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Please feel free to leave a comment and be sure to join our group on Facebook. Now relax and enjoy the show. Luster Cream Shampoo for soft, glamorous, caressable hair and Colgate Dental Cream to clean your breath while you clean your teeth and help stop tooth decay bring you Our Miss Brooks starring Eve Arden. Yes, it's time once again for Eve Arden in another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks, written by Al Lewis. Well, for most of us, it's considerably harder to get up early on winter mornings than it is during the summer. But this isn't the case with Our Miss Brooks, who teaches English at Madison High School. Maybe I'm just being perverse, but if I found it any harder to get up early in the winter than I do in the summer, I'd sleep right through the spring. (laughs) That's why Mrs. Davis, my landlady, had such a time waking me last Thursday morning. Connie, get up, Connie. Go away, Mrs. Davis. Come on now. You told me yourself that you wanted to get up at 6.30 sharp. I was lying. (laughs) I can't understand what makes you so difficult to wake up. Oh, it must be because of my dream. Your dream? Yes, I dreamt I was out very late last night. Oh. You did go out with Mr. Boynton last night, didn't you? I had dinner with the bashful one, yes. Was it an exciting evening, Connie? It was a rip snorter. (laughs) When we got to the front door, Mr. Boynton apologized for keeping me out until the wee small hours. What time was it, Connie? Five minutes of ten. (laughs) Of course, by the time he got finished saying goodnight, the way he says it, it was considerably later. What time was it then? Four minutes of (laughs) ten. Well, I better take my shower and get dressed, Mrs. Davis. All right, Connie. Mr. Boynton isn't the most romantic fellow in the world, is he? So far, Cary Grant has nothing to worry about. (laughs) Oh, this coffee was very good, Mrs. Davis. Oh, I'm glad you like it, Connie. Do you know what I put into the coffee grounds to get that flavor? Don't tell me. I want another cup first. (laughs) There we are. You want some? No, thanks. I've been thinking about Mr. Boynton all morning. Why, Mrs. Davis, don't tell me I've got competition. Oh, competition? Oh, of course not, Connie. Why, I'm old enough to be both your mothers. Oh, now, please, Mrs. Davis, you mustn't split up over us. <laughs> oh, that must be Walter Denton. I can tell because there's still some food on the breakfast table. I'll get it. All right, Connie. I'm going out in the yard for a few minutes. I've got to try to fix that incinerator. The incinerator? What's the matter with it? It caught on fire the other day. <laughs> I'll tell you about it when I come back. Should be interesting. Be right there. Good morning, Walter. Correction, Miss Brooks. It's a wonderful morning. A delicious morning. A morning dripping with ecstasy. Well, trickle in, happy boy. <laughs> What are you celebrating, Walter? Was Madison High swept out to sea by a tidal wave? Uh, Of course not, Miss Brooks. It's me that's being carried along by a tidal wave. A tidal wave of emotion unprecedented in one of my tender years. It's as if I'd discovered a hidden wellspring in the core of my being. You'll find a blotter in the hall closet. (laughs) Now, come on into the 
dinette. I was just finishing a cup of coffee. Oh, I'd be happy to join you in a bit of breakfast, Miss Brooks. Sit down, Walter. How about a glass of milk? Uh, a glass of milk and a few pieces of coffee cake will be fine, thanks. Hmm. I'm glad you brought your beaming face over so early today. Maybe you can loan me a pint or two of ecstasy. What's it all about? Well, it's Harriet, Miss Brooks. I'm really in solid with her, and all because of a fortunate accident that happened yesterday afternoon. What kind of an accident? Well, yesterday after school, she was in the garage looking for a tennis racket, and her father's car was in the way. Now, you know how finicky old Marblehead is about the... <laughs> Mr. Conklin is about his car. <laughs> I know he doesn't let anyone drive it. Drive it? He doesn't let anybody come within six feet of it if he can help it. He even parks it himself in parking lots. Why, I've heard him boast that since the day he bought it, his car has been untouched by human hands. <laughs> How does he get it lubricated? And if you say by grease monkeys, I'll take away that cake. <laughs> oh, no, he does it himself, Miss Brooks. So you can imagine how nervous Harriet got when she tried to back it up a few feet in the garage and the wheels were turned too sharply and bang, she put a neat dent in the fender. Now, that's when I got the inspiration that will forever endear me to Harriet Conklin. What did you do, smuggle her out of the country? <laughs> no, Miss Brooks. I decided to take the rap for what she'd done. Instead of obeying my normal, natural impulse to run like a crook, uh, I decided to face Mr. Conklin and take the blame. But, Mo Walter, Mr. Conklin isn't too fond of you as it is. I'll say he isn't. He can't stand the sight of me. <laughs> But as I say, Miss Brooks, I was inspired. So I went around to the front of the house, I strode boldly up the porch steps and faced Mr. Conklin's face, face to face. In the picture, let's face it. <laughs> Sir, I said, you're not going to like this, but the fender of your car has just been dented. And it was I, Walter Denton, who did the denting. <laughs> You've been reading too much Ogden Nash. What did Mr. Conklin say to that, Walter? He said, Denton, I admire your honesty. That's all he said? Not another word, not another syllable. He just extended his hand and shoved me down the steps. <laughs> I knew there was some sort of punctuation. <laughs> but as I landed in the yard below, I felt a warm glow spreading around my heart. I questioned the geographical accuracy of that remark. <laughs> no, it's the truth, Miss Brooks. I saw a look in Harriet's eyes she helped me up that seemed to say, Walter Denton, I am forever your slave. And you know something, Miss Brooks? That system would work for you, too. But, Walter, I can't be your slave. The Board of Education has a priority. <laughs> no, I'm talking about Mr. Boynton. Now, if you want to get in solid with him, all you've got to do is just what I did. What, let Mr. Conklin shove me down the steps? No, Miss Brooks, take the rap for some jam that Mr. Boynton gets into But Mr. Boynton doesn't get into any jams How could I possibly take any raps for him? Maybe a jam could be arranged for Mr. Boynton Mrs. Davis <laughs> I couldn't help but hear your conversation, Connie You couldn't? No, I had my ear to the keyhole <laughs> Walter, I want you to know that I think you've got a wonderful idea there. Oh, thanks, Mrs. Davis Now it shouldn't be too tough to figure out a way to get Mr. Boynton into some kind of trouble at school. Then you could take the blame for him, and he'd be so grateful. He wouldn't know what to do for you first. But I bet you could tell him. <laughs> but that 
That would be framing a perfectly innocent man. But it's for his own good, Connie. He's just too shy to realize that you two were meant for each other. Now, it's quite early yet, so before you start out for school, let's all sit quietly and try to figure out the best possible scheme. Swell. We'll all concentrate. I've got it. What is it? I'll borrow Mr. Boynton's cigarette lighter and leave it in the principal's office as evidence. His cigarette lighter? What good would that do? Oh, I forgot to tell you. First, I'd set fire to Mr. Conklin. <laughs> Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden, will continue in just a moment, but first here is Vern Smith. Now, dental science reveals a startling discovery in the fight against tooth decay. Proof that always using Colgate Dental Cream right after eating helps stop tooth decay before it starts. Continuous research, hundreds of case histories, makes this the most important news in dental history. Eminent dental authorities supervised hundreds of college men and women for over a year. One group always brushed their teeth with Colgate's right after eating. The other followed their usual dental care. And here are the amazing results. The group using Colgate Dental Cream, as directed, showed a startling reduction in average number of cavities, far less tooth decay. The other group developed new cavities at a much higher rate. No other dentifrice offers proof of these results. And Colgate's contains all the necessary ingredients, including an exclusive patented ingredient for effective daily dental care. No risk of irritation to tissues and gums. And no change in flavor, foam, or cleansing action. As always, Colgate's cleans your breath while it cleans your teeth. The Colgate's, now at your dealers, is the same formula used in the test. Always use Colgate Dental Cream right after eating to help prevent new cavities, help stop tooth decay before it starts. <laughs> We arrived at school in plenty of time for me to try out the Walter Denton plan for obtaining the gratitude of the object of one's affections, or as Walter so romantically put it, get him in the jam, take the wrap, and you got him in your pocket. <laughs> anyway, I headed directly for Mr. Boynton's biology lab, and knowing that Mr. Conklin's disposition wouldn't be improved any by the dent in his fender, I glided very carefully past his office, but I guess I wasn't careful enough. Miss Brooks. Oops. Morning, Mr. Conklin. On our toes this morning, aren't we? Yes, we are. Especially you. It's just that I didn't want to disturb you, sir. Very considerate of you. Now, if you don't mind, Miss Brooks, you can put your shoes on and step into my office. <laughs> there we are. Have a seat. Thank you, sir. As you know, Miss Brooks, I have high blood pressure. Yes, sir, I know. Sometimes when you get excited, your face gets so red, it looks like uh, a little old... Never mind. <laughs> never mind the little word pictures, Miss Brooks. I know how I look when I get excited. What I wanted to tell you is that I saw you stepping out of Walter Denton's car this morning. Oh? I see you stepping out of Denton's car almost every morning when you come to school, and it rather fascinates me. What does? Well, you see, sometimes I park my car right in front of school sometimes a few yards to the right of it and sometimes halfway down the block. But do you know something, Miss Brooks? No matter where I park it, Denton always manages to pull up alongside of it so that when you get out of his car, you have to slide your body the entire length of my car, making nick after nick in the paint job! <laughs> I'm terribly sorry, Mr. Conklin. 
I had no idea I was so abrasive. <laughs> well, it's not deliberate, I'm sure. But every third Sunday when I Simonize my car, I, uh, <laughs> I find a little nick here, a little nick there, here a scratch, there a scrape. Everywhere a scratch scrape. <laughs> I mean, I can understand your being annoyed, Mr. Conklin, but... I'm glad. You see, Miss Brooks, to me, a man's car is a most personal possession. As personal, you might say, as his toothbrush. Well, in the future, Mr. Conklin, you can rest assured that I'll make every effort not to bump into your toothbrush. A uh, car. <laughs> Thanks, Miss Brooks. Oh, before you go, there's one more thing. Yes? Make a little effort to avoid bumping into Mr. Boynton so often, too. You know how I stand on fraternization between faculty members? Mr. Boynton? And me? Why, well, just put it out of your mind, Mr. Conklin. That's a thing of the past. Oh, really? Of course. Why, if I were the only woman in the world and Mr. Boynton was the last man on earth... Yes, Miss Brooks? I'd like to leave a call for Tuesday. <laughs> so you see, Mr. Boynton, although I don't like to lecture, these little visits have just got to stop. That's all there is to it. But why, Miss Brooks? I, I like your dropping into my lab like this. Well, that's the end of that lecture. Any questions? <laughs> oh, honestly, I don't see why Mr. Conklin's so strict about teachers passing the time of day once in a while. What harm does it do? Well, it does slow up our work some, I suppose. Although I haven't anything urgent to do at the moment. In fact, I was just doodling on this scratch pad. You see, it's a sketch of one of my white mice. Say, that's very cute. How is everything with you, Mr. Boynton? Fine, Miss Brooks. No trouble on the horizon at all? That is, everything sailing along smoothly for you? Smooth as silk. Oh. Let me have that mouse you just drew. Hmm? And that pencil. Thanks. Now, when I put this little mustache on him, who does it remind you of? Well, gee, I don't know. Here, I'll give you a hint. There. Well, when you put his name on it, it does look quite a bit like Mr. Conklin. <laughs> Say, that reminds me. I've got some reports to turn into him this morning. Oh, I'll do it for you. I'm going right by his office. Are you sure it's no trouble? Trouble? It's my opportunity. I mean, I'll be glad to leave these reports for you. <laughs> See you later, Mr. Boynton. All right, Miss Brooks, and thanks. Now I better tear up that drawing with Osgood Conklin's name on it, or he might... Well, that's funny. It disappeared. Oh, Miss Brooks, just a minute. What is it? Uh, did you happen to pick up that drawing I... Miss Brooks, what's that you're stuffing in the envelope with my reports? Please, Mr. Boynton, I never stuff. Let's see that a minute. <laughs> but, Mr. Boynton, if you don't get reports in promptly to Mr. Conklin, he gets furious. Miss Brooks, look at this picture. Eat a mouse. <laughs> yes, and with a mustache. Now, I, I wish you'd tell me what he's doing in there with my reports. Maybe there's some cheese in the envelope. <laughs> There's no laughing matter, Miss Brooks. I could have gotten into a fine jam with Mr. Conklin. Yes, it could have been a beauty. Uh, but there's no harm done, Mr. Boynton. I would have discovered it before I got to Mr. Conklin's office, and I... Well, you don't think I intentionally... Mr. Boynton, how dare you accuse me of what I just did? <laughs> I just saw Mr. Boynton at the other end of the cafeteria. Well, if you must know, Harriet, I'm staying away from Mr. Boynton because of your father. Oh, Daddy won't be up to the cafeteria today. He's been terribly upset since I dented his fender yesterday. Walter Denton took the blame for it, though. 
He's just an angel, Miss Brooks. Yes, I heard he flew down the steps beautifully. <laughs> but ever since it happened, Daddy's been on a rampage. He's positive he's got an ulcer. Really? Can he afford one? I mean, I'm sorry to hear it. Daddy called the cafeteria a little while ago and had them prepare a special lunch for him to eat in his office. Plain broth and a whole boiled chicken. Walter's bringing the tray over from the steam table now. I promised Daddy I'd bring it right down to his office. Well, here we are, Harriet. This ought to stop the old lion from growling for his vittles. Oh, hiya, Miss Brooks. Hello, Walter. Thanks, Walter. I'll rush it right down to oh, him. Oh, just a minute, Harriet. I was just thinking. I've got to go back to my room for a minute. Why don't you stay here and eat your own lunch and let me take the tray for you? Well, well, that's very nice of you, Miss Brooks. Oh, it's nothing I... at all, Harriet. Here, give me the tray, Walter. Well, you're sure you'll drop it right in Daddy's office? Nothing would give me greater pleasure. <laughs> Walter, will you walk out of the cafeteria with me for a moment? Oh, sure, Miss Brooks. Excuse me, Harriet. Certainly, Walter, dear. See how nice she is to me. How are you doing, Miss Brooks? Think of any way to get Mr. Boynton into a jam? I think I've got an idea, Walter, but you've got to help me. Yeah? While he's out, I want you to take this tray into Mr. Boynton's laboratory. Just put a little note on it saying compliments of the cafeteria. And whatever you do, don't mention this to Harriet. Hey, but, Miss Brooks, this lunch belongs to Mr. Quiet, Walter. His office is just a few doors down the hall. You started me on this thing. Now the least you can do is cooperate. Well, okay, Miss Brooks. I'll put it in the lab right away. But I sure hope you know what you're doing. I sure hope you get your hope. Well, what is it? May I see you for a moment, Mr. Conklin? Oh, come in, come in. Uh, there's something I'd like to tell you, sir. Very well, but be brief. Oh, I will. I know this is your feeding time, or lunchtime. <laughs> it is past my lunchtime. The tray I ordered should have been here a half an hour ago. Well, that's what I came in to talk to you about. It might be some sort of a prank, and although I'm not the one to go in for informing, Mr. Prank? Conklin, who took my lunch? I don't know, I'm sure. But I thought if you wanted me to, I could inspect some of the laboratories, uh, classrooms, and see who the, <laughs> who the guilty party might be. A splendid suggestion, Miss Brooks. Only instead of you inspecting the classrooms, I'll do it myself. Yourself? Oh, but you're not a well man, Mr. Conklin. You, you can't leave this office now. Uh, you... Step aside, Miss Brooks. I'm going to locate my lunch or else. <laughs> I'm glad you got to class before any of the others, Walter. I'm in the spot. Have it, Miss Brooks? When I had you put that lunch tray in Mr. Boynton's lab, I wanted him to see it before I transferred it to my room and told Mr. Conklin that somebody had played a prank on me. Yeah, I know, Miss Brooks, Mr. But Mr. Conklin it... insisted on making the rounds himself, and now... Walter, isn't that the lunch tray on my desk? Yeah, that's what I've been trying to explain, Miss Brooks. Mr. Boynton already had lunch, so when he found it in the lab, he brought it down here to your room. He said he wanted to treat you. Oh, fine. Well, there's no time for any more schemes now. I'd better sneak his lunch into Mr. Conklin's office while he's out looking. Oh, there's something else I've got to explain, Miss Brooks. Although Mr. Boynton had his lunch and I knew you'd had yours, I didn't have mine. So rather than take a chance of getting caught in the hall with it, I ate it. <laughs> Let's see it. Oh, there's nothing left but a skeleton. I've got to get rid of this tray immediately. Quick, Walter, open the window. I'll take these dishes and lower them out. Yeah. Just a moment, Miss Brooks. <laughs> What's that you're holding in your hand? For all practical purposes, my death warrant. <laughs> you see, Mr. Conklin... Silence! I... <laughs> Put it down on your desk, please. Thank you. 
So you wanted to hunt through the classrooms yourself, eh? A very clever red herring, Miss Brooks, but it just didn't work. I'll deal with you later, of course. But for now, I'll just take my lunch and... My lunch? What happened to it? This chicken is nothing but skin and bones. He's been working very hard lately. <laughs> Please, Mr. Conklin, I'll explain it all later. I'll think of something. Uh, just go to your office and relax. Why, I'll bring you a tray that'll make you feel like a million dollars. There's only one thing I want you to bring me on a tray, Miss Brooks. And that's your head! <laughs> Certainly glad school's over, Mr. Boynton. I thought this day would never end. Oh, me too. Mr. Conklin was in a pretty bad mood, wasn't he? I can't understand it. He's got such a fine teaching staff, you'd think he'd be happy. Well, here's my car, Miss Brooks. Uh, if you haven't made any other plans, uh, well, that is, I, I thought maybe if, uh, if you didn't have a ride with some other, well, uh, what would... Would you like me to, uh... I'm already in, Mr. Boynton. <laughs> oh. oh, fine, I I'll get in. Now, we'll just... Uh-oh, well, I seem to be jammed in between two cars here. Oh, it is pretty tight, bumper to bumper. Well, I'll just have to stop my motor and push the car in front of me a bit. Why do people persist in leaving their cars in gear? You've got enough room now, Mr. Boynton. You can stop pushing the car in front of you. I have stopped. That car's rolling by itself. M Miss Brooks, what'll I do? Well, there's nothing you can do. Maybe it'll stop by itself. the first time I've been right today. Come on. Oh, look at that fender, crumpled like an accordion. Well, let's see who the car belongs to. Miss Brooks, can you see the certificate on the steering wheel? Quite clearly, Mr. Boynton. It says, and I quote, Osgood Conklin. Osgood Conklin? What? Well, I, I guess I'll have to face the music. You, you wait right here, Miss Brooks. I'm going in and report this to Mr. Conklin. Well, that's a fine insurance company you're with, Gibbon. I'm sorry, Mr. Conklin, but our inspector looked at the fender this morning, and he says the dent can be hammered out for about $40. But I don't want it hammered out. I want a new fender. What am I paying insurance premiums for? Sorry, Mr. Conklin. A new fender would cost over $150, and the dent you have doesn't justify it. Since your policy is a $50 deductible, you'll have to stand the expense yourself. Bye. Uh, but, Mr. Gibbons, Goodbye. I... Mr. Gibbons, I... Mr. Gibbons, Mr... He hung up on me. Well, of all the colossal nerves. Oh, pardon me, sir. Uh, what do you want, Boynton? I, uh, I wish to report an accident, sir, an automobile accident. Automobile accident? Anybody hurt? Not yet. <laughs> you see, sir, uh, uh, it was your car. My car? Yes, sir. You had me locked in at the curb, and I had to give it a little push, and the brake wasn't on, and, well, it, it didn't stop till it hit a tree. A tree? What happened to it? Oh, nothing happened to the tree, Mr. Conklin. LAUGHTER 
<laughs> but your, your fender, it's, uh, it's just... Smashed up pretty good, Boynton? Mangled. Really wrecked, eh? <laughs> oh, Boynton, that's wonderful. <laughs> wonderful? You mean, you mean you're happy about it? Well, of course. I'll show that insurance company that... Oh, wait a minute. That fender couldn't be hammered out, could it? Oh, definitely not. And a boy, Boynton! <laughs> oh, I won't forget this, my boy. You've done me a real turn. Don't you see? I had a little dent in the fender, but the insurance company wouldn't replace it. But now they'll have to. Do you hear me? They'll have to. <laughs> Wait. Wait. Mr. Conklin, you're barking at the wrong tree. I mean, I alone am responsible for what just happened to your car. You? But Mr. Boynton said Never that... mind what Mr. Boynton said. Uh, now, see here, Miss Brooks. There's no necessity for you to go... Ixnay, Mr. Boynton. I'll handle this. No, Mr. Conklin, I know you're angry at me as it is, but I cannot let an innocent person try to shield me. You can go now, Mr. Boynton. Leave here a free man. But, Miss Brooks, you, you can thank me some other time. Tonight, say. <laughs> but I, I, I don't understand. Why are you trying to take credit for this, Boynton? Credit? Credit? Look, Mr. Conklin, I don't understand a lot of things that have happened here today, so if you'll excuse me, I'll take Miss Brooks' suggestion and then leave here a free man. But, Mr. Boynton, I don't... Well, now, what's the matter with him? What difference does it make who did what as long as I'm pleased? Miss Brooks, you have no idea what you've just done for me. You're so right. And you, Mr. Conklin, have no idea what I have just done to me. But I told you I'm not angry. Why are you still up a tree? If an English teacher may correct a principle, Mr. Conklin, it isn't a tree that I'm up. What I'm up and without a paddle is a creek. Eve Arden, as our Miss Brooks, returns in just a moment, but first... Dream girl, dream girl, beautiful luster cream girl. Tonight, yes, tonight, show him how much lovelier your hair can look after a luster cream shampoo. Luster cream, world's finest shampoo. No other shampoo in the world gives K. Dumas magic blend of secret ingredients plus gentle lanolin. Not a soap, not a liquid. Luster cream shampoo leaves hair three ways lovelier. Fragrantly clean, free of loose dandruff, glistening with sheen, soft, manageable. Even in hardest water, luster cream lathers instantly. No special rinse needed after a luster cream shampoo. So gentle, luster cream is wonderful even for children's hair. Tonight, yes, tonight, try luster cream shampoo. Dream girl, dream girl, beautiful luster cream girl, you owe your crowning glory to a luster cream shampoo. And now, once again, here is our Miss Brooks. Well, I corralled Mr. Boynton before he got into his car again and explained that I thought he was in trouble and was merely coming to his rescue. Well, I'm afraid I don't approve of such heroics, Miss Brooks. You see, I've always liked to stand on my own two feet. It's a trait I inherited from my father. Really? Yes, Miss Brooks. I've gotten where I am today without the help of any woman. I'm rather proud of that, and so is my father. Mr. Boynton, could I have his address? His address? 
What for, Miss Brooks? I want to send your father a card on Mother's Day. <laughs> Next week, tune into another Our Miss Brooks show brought to you by Luster Cream Shampoo for soft, glamorous, caressable hair and Colgate Dental Cream to clean your breath while you clean your teeth and help stop tooth decay. Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden, is produced by Larry Burns, directed by Al Lewis, with music by Wilbur Hatch. <laughs> Doctors prove you, too, may have a lovelier complexion in 14 days. Yes, 36 leading skin specialists proved in tests on 1,285 different women that a new method of cleansing with palm olive soap using nothing but palm olive brought new complexion beauty to two women out of three. Just wash your face three times daily with palm olive soap. Each time for 60 seconds, massaging palm olive's beauty lather onto your skin, then rinse. So start your palm olive facials today. See what palm olive soap can do for your complexion in just 14 days. The people in war-torn countries will be increasingly hungry, cold, and ill with the coming of winter. You can help them by sending care packages. Care packages include vital food, clothing, blankets. Care guarantees delivery. Just send $10 to Care, New York. For mystery liberally sprinkled with laughs, listen to Mr. and Mrs. North Tuesday evening over most of these same stations. And be with us again next week at the same time for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks. Bob Lamont speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. For a Christian sci-fi with humor, adventure and a touch of romance, read Quantum Spacewalker, Jarl's Journey. Travel with Jarl through the universe and several dimensions as he unearths items to help those struggling to survive on Earth during the catastrophic conclusion of the age. GraceGrows.com has more information. Read Quantum Spacewalker, Jarl's Journey by Grace S. Gross. Good evening. Here is the Amos and Andy Show with their guest tonight, Mr. Adolphe Manjou. this afternoon, Amos dropped in at Andy's office and said, If you ain't doing nothing tonight, Andy, me and Ruby would like to have you come over and meet a friend of Ruby's. Ruby says she's the sweetest girl she knows. Amos, I is as good as there. Yes, and Andy was there. <laughs> and he has never had a more pleasant evening in his life, principally because everything Ruby had said about her friend Janice Carpenter, Andy found to be true. As we find them now, the evening is over, and Andy and Janice are about to leave. Well, I sure had a nice time here tonight, folks. Oh, yes, it's been lovely. Thank you so much, Ruby. You're welcome. Andy, you're taking Janice home, aren't you? Oh, sure. It'll be a pleasure. Uh, good night, folks. Good night. Good night. See you soon, son. So long. Come again. Good night. Oh, Amos and his wife sure are nice people, aren't they, Mr. Brown? Yeah, they sure is. Say, by the way, Janice, how about you and me going out together tomorrow night? Why, I'd love to, Mr. Brown, but I have a previous engagement. Oh, you is, huh? 
Well, uh, how about the night after that? Oh, I'm sorry. I have a previous engagement then, too. Oh, you will. Mm-hmm. You could call me. Well, about the middle of the week, you could call me, Mr. Brown, and, and maybe we could arrange something. Hmm, middle of the week. Well, I tell you, Miss Carpenter, I, as previous, gazed up myself there for about 10, 10 11 nights in a row. Come on, let's walk a little faster. <laughs> Come on in, Andy. Well, hello there, Brother Andy. Hi, Kingfish. Hello, Amos. Yeah, how'd you like that gal that we had up at the house last night, Andy? Well, I liked her fine, Amos. That's the trouble. She seemed to like you, too. Well, listen, if she liked me so much, then how come that after only being in town a couple of weeks, and she says she don't know hardly nobody, I still couldn't get no date with her for either one of the next two nights? Uh, well, maybe she is playing hard to get. You know, that's the way with some of these babes. Listen, Kingfish, don't call Miss Carpenter no babe. She happened to be the nicest gal I don't ever met in my life. Oh, pardon me, King Lancelot. <laughs> I didn't know that you was in love with the beautiful princess. Well, I don't know whether I'm in love with her or not. All I know is that when I was with her, I gets a kind of nice, warm feeling inside of me, just like I'd done at a bowl of hot soup. <laughs> Well, if it's just a warm feeling you was after, stick to the soup, son. You'll find it a lot cheaper, I tell you that. <laughs> Andy, you was right about this Janice Carpenter, though. She is a swell girl. And as far as her being busy for the next couple of nights, she wasn't just dusting you off there. She wasn't? Oh, no, Andy. You see, when she first got to town, she met a guy, well, a fella that kind of fell for her. Hmm. And he sends a candy and everything. And, well, naturally, she goes out with him. <laughs> Who's the fella? A fella called, uh, Racy Russell. I think you know him. Yeah, I know him. A big spender. Uh, not only that, but a smart dresser, too. He wears them light, tan, pointy shoes with the black shoelaces on them. <laughs> yeah, well, I gotta get going now, Andy. I just thought I'd let you know that so you'd see what the situation was. Yeah, well, thank you, Amos. Oh, uh, so long, Amos. So long, fella. Hmm. Pointy shoes. I can get a pair of them, too. Kingfish, I'm going to get me a job. Yeah, well, if I... Uh, what's that, Andy? I say I'm going to get me a job so I can make some money. And I know where I can get one, too. There's a fella downtown that runs a florist shop that's looking for a big zechariah. Mm. I'm going to get that job. Andy, that's a very good job of sweeping. Oh, thank you, Mr. Melton. Mm hmm. The floor looks fine, Andy. I hope you're going to like it working here in a flower shop. Oh, yes, sir. I was crazy about flowers. <laughs> good. Say, by the way, that other fellow that I done told you about for a de delivery boy, you know, mm -hmm. he coming down a little while to go to work. Oh, that's fine. Oh, say, I, uh, I've got to go out for a couple of minutes to pick up some corsage ribbon just a few doors down. Now, look, while I'm gone, Andy, I wish you'd change the water in those cut flowers. Uh, yes, sir. And in case any customers come in, just ask them to wait a minute till I return. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the old, 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 the pretty little roses and the sweet carnations. I love all the flowers and the daisies. Daisies. Hmm. 
Well, she loved me. She loved me not. 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 Hmm. Four petals left. She loved me not. Hmm. That's the last time I'm going to trust a daisy. If that gal... Uh, oh, how you do, sir? How you do? Well, I say, my good man, uh, I'd like to get some flowers. Oh, yes, sir. Well, well the boss just stepped out, mister, but uh, he'll be back in a couple of minutes. Well, I'm in a hurry. Can't you wait on me? Well, uh, uh, I could, but uh, I'm supposed to. Uh, tell you what, though, I'll kind of show you the flowers till the boss gets back. All right. Uh, anything particular you wanted? Uh, them carnations there is nice. No, no. no not carnations. Hmm. I want a flower that, uh, that's got romance to it. Something that will tell a lady how a gentleman feels about her. Yeah, well, I'll give you a little tip. Steer clear of them daisies. <laughs> now, uh, let's see. Uh, what other flowers are there here? Well, uh, let me see. We got these red ones there with the green stems. <laughs> There's pretty. Oh, then we got these blue ones here with the green stems. <laughs> and then these over here, these yellow ones. Uh, green stems on them, too. Well, they all seem to be running with green stems this year, don't they? Uh, yes, sir, they do. Yeah. Ah, there's what I want. The queen of the flower kingdom, the orchid. Yeah, yeah, they is pretty all right. Uh, how many would you want, mister? About a dozen? Well, uh, how much are they? Well, let's see. Say on the sign there, $5 each. I guess that mean each bunch. <laughs> I ain't sure that's a full bunch, though. Look kind of skimpy, don't it? No, no. No, that means uh, $5 for each flower. Each flower? Yes, I've bought them here before. There are exactly 14 here. Oh, look, I'll take them all. You mean you're going to take 14 orchids at $5 each? Well, of course. Why not? That's going to make quite a mess of them hanging down on the front of the lady. <laughs> sure is. Well, the lady happens to be my wife, and uh, I don't expect her to wear them. Here's the $70. Now, uh, I just want to write out a card and give you the address where you can send them. Oh, yes, sir. Yeah, well, here, here. Here's a pen and a card right here. Uh, thank you. May these flowers express what I've been trying so hard to say myself. Adolf. Now, there. Put this card inside the box and send it to Mrs. Adolf Manjou at this address. Yes, sir. I sure hope your wife liked these, Mrs. Manjou. Well, I have a feeling that she will. You know... Women are strange that way. Sometimes they see in the petals of a flower that which they cannot see in a man's face. Mm, they do? Uh, do that work with all women? Oh, yes. Flowers seem to whisper to a woman exactly what she wants to hear. Say, you don't give me an idea. I think you got something there. Well, Andy, I, I didn't think you were ready to wait on any customers yet, but I guess I can't complain when you sell every orchid in the place at top price. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, well, here's the money, Mr. Melton, uh, $70. Oh, yes, uh-huh. Thank you. Mm. I was worried about getting back late, but I guess I couldn't have done any better myself. Uh, Mr. Melton. Yes, Andy? How much is them violets a bunch? Oh, well, we get a dollar a bunch for them, Andy. Well, why do you ask? Well, uh, uh, I was thinking I'd like to send a bunch to a friend of mine. Hmm. 
You know, a woman that can't look you in the face can sometimes see something in a flower and all that stuff. Well, go right ahead, Andy. And you can have them for 50 cents. Oh, thank you, Mr. Melton. All right. Oh, by the way, did that delivery boy get here? Oh, yes, sir. He's in the back room sleeping. Uh, he sleep in between delivers, but when he's awake, he kind of hop around. We call him kangaroo lightning. <laughs> I see. Well, I've got Mr. Manju's orchids all packed in this long box here, Andy, and you can have him deliver them right now. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Oh, lightning. Hey, lightning, is you awake? Uh, yes, sir. I was right on my toes. <laughs> Yeah, well, I got a couple of rush deliverers here for you. Yeah, so I'll rush them, Miss Andy. Uh, where you want me to whiz them to? <laughs> well, there's two boxes here. This big long one and the one I was wrapping here. One go uptown and one go downtown. So you don't want to take one of them yourself, would you, Miss Andy? Well, I would, but I'm afraid of that walking. You see... I'm going to be wearing light, tan, pointy shoes in a couple of days, and I don't want my feet to get all swole up on me. Well, which one of these boxes go where? Well, this big one here goes to Mrs. Adolph Manju at this address on this piece of paper. Uh-huh. Yeah. And this little bitsy one go to Miss Janice Carpenter at this address right here. And you be sure to tell Miss Carpenter that they are from Mr. Brown. Okay, Miss Andy, I'll take care of everything. Uh, excuse me, is you Miss Janice Carpenter? That's right. I got some flowers here for you from Mr. Brown. Mr. Brown? He sent me flowers? Uh, yes, ma'am. He was going to bring them himself, but he buying pointy-toed shoes, and he was afraid his feet was full up on him. Well, I must look at him right away. Yeah, I'd like to see him, too. Oh. Oh. Orchids. Real orchids. The most beautiful flowers in all the world. And to think they're Now back to Amos and Andy and their guest, Mr. Adolph Manjou. Andy's girl, Janice, is very happy. She's received the flowers. Now we join Andy and the kingfish in the flower shop. Oh, uh, Andy, you say the boss is up in the front of the store, huh? Yeah, kingfish, he's fixing up some flowers. Yeah, well, the reason I come down here was to tell you that that gal that you was crazy about, that Miss Carpenter, called you up at the office looking for you. And I know you didn't want her to know that you was a porter down here in the floor show. Mm. So she said that if I seed you... To have you phone her right away. Oh, hot diggity. Lightning done got there with the violets. Mm-hmm. I'm going to call her up right away. You're sending the gal flowers, huh, Andy? Mm. Yeah, I think you're doing the wrong thing. What do you mean? Well, when I was quoting the battle act 17 years ago, <laughs> I give her a bunch of flowers one time. Uh-huh. She's been bothering me for another bunch ever since. <laughs> well, this don't happen to be the kind of a... Uh, wait a minute. Hello? Oh. Miss Carpenter? Uh, yes, Mr. Brown. Hello. Uh, excuse me just a second. I was at the office here. Say, will you stenographers and clerks be quiet with them typewriters and ad machines and stuff? Hello? 
Oh, Mr. Brown, I hate to bother you, but I wanted to tell you how much I appreciate those flowers you sent to me. Oh, that was nothing. Nothing? Well, they're the most beautiful things I ever saw. You think they is beautiful? Oh. Miss Carpenter, why don't you let the flowers look at you? Oh. Andy, that was a humdinger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really roll in here, ain't I? Mm, you sure is. Wait a minute. Uh, you say you like the flowers, huh? They're so nice. And something tells me that you're kind of nice yourself. Oh. <laughs> I is? If you still want to go out on a date tonight, I'd love to. Oh, sure I do. I'd love to, too. Well, I, I'll be expecting you, Mr. Bannon. I'll wear one of the flowers in my hair. Yeah, well, I, uh... Did you say one? <laughs> Ain't that gonna look kind of skimpy? After all, I wouldn't want to wear all 14 of them at once. 14? Uh, what's the matter, Andy? Uh, just a second, Janice. You know what, Kingfish? No, what done happened now? It looked like when Lightning was delivering them violets, he done spilled some of them. 14. <laughs> now, there's something. Uh, uh Janice, uh, you ain't got a skimp, because I'm going to send you a bunch of flowers like that every day. A bunch? I'd be thrilled with just one of them. Yeah, well, uh, I tell you what, I'll see you about 7.30. Oh, that'll be fine. Goodbye, Mr. Brown. Goodbye, Janice. You sound like a dying calf there, that last thing. <laughs> oh, listen, Kingfish, I want to tell you something. That is the kind of gal I ought to have all the time. Mm -hmm. A gal that's happy with one violet. Well, there's <laughs> always that way in the beginning, Andy. Well, funny thing, though, nice as she is to me, she always called me by my last name. Maybe if I could... Uh, wait a minute. Uh, I'll get it, Mr. Melton. Okay, Andy. Melton Flower Shop speaking. Hello. Uh, hello. This is Mr. Mojo. Uh, who? Adolf Mojo. Uh, uh, you ain't next door by any chance, is you? No, I'm not next door. Are you the man who waited on me when I bought the orchids? Uh, yes, sir, I is the man. Well, what's the idea? Uh, but, uh, excuse me a second, Mr. Monju, while I change ears here. <laughs> this right ear is numbing up on me. Now, what was that? What's the big idea of sending my wife violets instead of orchids? Uh, what was that again? You sent me violets instead of orchids. Hold the phone. <laughs> Kingfish eyes in a mess. Yeah, well, don't look at me. Uh, Mr. Monju, something must have done gone wrong. Yes, and something's going wrong with you if I don't get more orchids. Uh, yes, yeah, sir. Well, what are you going to do about it? Well, I'll tell you. Don't tell me anything. You come right down here to my apartment and straighten this thing out. Oh, uh, yes, yeah, sir. Yeah, you're really in trouble, are you? Is I in trouble? I'll say I is. What, what happened? Lightning done got the boxes mixed up on some flowers. Mr. Adolph Monju's wife got a bunch of violets, and my gal, Janice Carpenter, got $70 worth of orchids. Wow, what is you going to do, Andy? I don't know. What can I do? I don't know how to get them orchids back from her. I got to do something. Help me, Kingfish. Oh, that's a mess. Uh, wait a minute, where are you going? Oh, I'm going out in the fresh air and try to get up enough nerve to face Mr. Monju. Then I'm going up to see him. I'll see you later, Kingfish. Do something to help me, will you, please? Oh, me. Okay, Andy, okay. Hmm. He is in trouble. I sure wish I could help him. Hmm. 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 
Maybe the old kingfish has got an idea. How do you do? Uh, Miss Carpenter? Yes? Uh, permit me to introduce myself. I is Professor George Stevens of the Harlem Horticultural Society Department of Flowers. Oh. Well, won't you come in? Oh, thank you. I'll put my high silk hat here on the hat rack, and I'll put my white chamois gloves in the tail of my long tail coat. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, sit down, won't you? Oh, thank you. Uh, Miss Carpenter, in some businesses, they have what is known as spotters. You know, they spot different things. Now, in the flower business, we has got what is known as smellers. Uh, that kind of smell things as they pass them, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now, it has done come to my attention through my smellers that you has received 14 of the most beautiful orchids in our fair city. Well, what about them, Mr. Stevens? Uh, the orchid you has got is so rare that our society, that is the Horticultural Society mm-hmm. Department of Flowers, uh, they want to take some pictures of them to put in the books for our children to see and for our children's children. Oh. In other words, for prosperity. <laughs> now, what I would like to do is to take them away and I'll bring them back to you after we have done You see, Mr. Monju... Now, don't stand here in my apartment and keep saying, you see, Mr. Monju, do something. Oh, uh, yes, sir, yes. Where are my orchids? Uh, well, I'm doing everything I can to figure out how to get them back here. But when do I get them? When? Hmm. It may be too late even now. Too late? What do you mean, Mr. Monju? Well, if you must know, I had a special reason for buying those orchids for my wife. You see, for the past two weeks, there's been some slight friction in this household between Mrs. Monju and me, and uh, it so happens that the orchids might serve to cure everything. And they were the only ones in town that I could find. Oh, uh, you and your wife having trouble? Yes, uh, Mrs. Monju has been a bit perturbed, and uh, rightly so, by what she has sometimes been known to refer to as the, um, the boy in me. Yes. <laughs> I've been in the doghouse myself. Well, uh, I'm not interested in where you've been. I want those orchids, and there'll be trouble. Well, I'm uh, sorry you're mad, uh, your wife is mad with you, Mr. Monju. So happens that there's another little thing that enters into it, too. Oh, it is? Just the mere fact that I happen to be madly in love with my wife and I... Oh, what's the use? You've bungled everything. And our maid tells me that when the violets came, my wife put on her hat and coat and walked out of the house with tears in her eyes. Mm, yeah, sad, all right. Let me tell you something, young man. Uh, well, I'll go and try to get the orchids for you, Mr. Monju. Well, you won't get them standing around here. Why don't you go out and look for them? Uh, yes, sir. I'm going to go out right now. Uh, uh, excuse me, Mr. Monju, though. I, I don't guess you want them violets. Would it be all right if I took them with me? I'll be glad to give them to you. Yeah, uh, I'll wait right here for them. Well, Hilda, before you answer that door, tell me, what did Mrs. Monju do with the violets? They're on our dressing table, sir. Well, I'll get you the violets of all the stupid things I've ever heard of. What is it, please? Oh, uh, excuse me, but is this Mr. Adolf Munch? Oh, wait a minute, there's the man who wants the end, the end. Oh, Kingfish, you got him. Oh, yeah, here you are, son. Here is the orchid. Oh, boy, you done saved my life. How did you get him? Don't ask no questions now. <laughs> All I can tell you is that Janice won't know the difference till the time comes that she ain't gonna get them back. Uh. Yeah, I got you out of this jam, too, didn't I? Uh, you got me out of one, but I got into another one. 
What is Janice going to say when she gets the violets back instead of the orchid? Yeah, well, I can't do everything for you. Wait a minute, wait, here it comes. Uh, Mr. Bonjou, here he is. Here's your orchids. Orchids? I'm afraid they've arrived a little too late. Too late? But Mr. Monju. Well, I have I... decided uh, to keep the violets instead. Perhaps this note I just found on the dresser will tell you why. Dearest Adolf, how strange that so many years have passed before you discovered that a woman's heart is wrapped up in little things. Do you remember a few years ago, it was just a week before we were married, we walked in the country and you stopped by a peaceful brook and picked me violets. You said if it were ever possible to love me more than you did then, you would tell me with violets. Adolf, you've given me many lovely gifts since then, but today my violets came. The loveliest present you've ever sent me. I'm glad you didn't forget your loving wife. Gee, that's the prettiest thing I ever heard. Yeah. <laughs> it sure will. It's pretty to me, too, boys. Now will you take these orchids and get out of here? Take the orchids? Yes. <laughs> Before my wife thinks I didn't buy her the violets. Miss Carpenter, how is you? Uh, still call me Mister, huh? Mm-hmm. Mm. I hope I ain't late. Oh no, no, I, I just finished dressing. Won't you sit down? Oh, thank you. Uh, you don't mind if I use this footstool here, does you? Oh, not at all. Yeah, I'll put my light tan pointy shoes with the black shoelaces up there. Oh, oh, they're very good looking, Mister Brown. Oh, sure, the latest thing. Uh, the only reason I cut the slits in there because the summer coming on, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Mr. Brown, I, I want to thank you again for those orchids. I, oh, I can't tell you how much they meant to me. Don't they look lovely on the table there? Yeah, they sure do. Oh, they're so beautiful. As a matter of fact, the man from the Horticulture Society came to take pictures of them. He brought them back just about an hour ago. Yeah, got some nice fellows in that society, all right. They certainly have. <laughs> when I spoke to you over the phone, I, I hadn't seen that card you enclosed in the box. Oh, it was a beautiful thought you expressed. I'll never forget it as long as I live. The card, you say? Mm-hmm. It made me feel so close to you. Up till now, I guess I've been kind of formal, calling you Mr. Brown and all that, and... I'm going to start calling you by your first name, though, right now. Oh, would you, Janice? That's what I've been waiting for. It would make me so happy. Let me hear you say it. All right. I think you're the most wonderful man in the world, Adolf. <laughs> Next Friday at this same time, Amos and Andy will have a show that you'll surely want to hear. Make certain you don't miss it. For at that time, the boy's guest will be the screen's most romantic actor, Mr. Charles Boyer. That's next Friday night at this same time. Our thanks to Adolphe Marjou for appearing with us tonight. 
He may currently be seen in the current picture success, High Diddle Diddle. Our program is broadcast to our armed forces overseas. This is Harlow Wilcox bidding you all good night, and don't forget, next week, Amos and Andy and Charles Boyer. Looking for a book that combines the Christian faith with a fantasy adventure? Creator's Call does just that. 18-year-old Edward has been raised with tales of distant lands where dragons and other strange beasts dwell. He dreams of one day joining the Keepers, who fight against them to keep the land safe, however, life's obstacles keep him firmly rooted in the small town of Cadestone. When 17-year-old June comes passing through, following a dream given to her by the creator of the universe, Edward's life is about to change. Pursued by a demon-possessed man, the two of them are forced to flee to areas where dragons and monsters are not just tales but reality. June and Edward eventually discover what the demons want from them. Is it possible to defeat this evil and save everyone from the darkness that threatens their lands? Creator's Call is a Christian fantasy novel with clear Christian messages. A book that glorifies God while taking you on an adventure. Pick up a copy of Creator's Call today. came over, you know, on the Mayflower, more than 300 years ago. <laughs> Ours is an old American family. My people came over on foot more than 20,000 years ago. Ours, well, you could say that ours is a very old American family. Who discovered America? More than 20,000 years ago, so the story goes, men from northeastern Asia found their way here the ancestors of the American Indians. Most likely, anthropologists say, they walked across the Bering Straits from Asia. What of their life here? We must go back. It is now 500 years before the birth of Christ. A young man sits in the shade of his house, mending his net, remembering the elk he saw on the ridge this dawn silhouetted against the clear Arizona sky. In New York, a tall man tussles a fish off his hook, while the beautiful sound of a bone flute reaches him from his village. In Kentucky, a woman sorts through her basket of snail-shell beads, sifting them through her skillful brown fingers to find the perfect one to complete the decorations on her husband's shirt. 
And on the prairie grassland, a group of hunters move slowly, carefully, toward a huge shaggy bison grazing upwind unawares. To these Americans, the land is real. They know the soil. They name the trees and the berries and the small animals. But to others across the seas, this land is still a thing of dreams and visions. So who are the next people to discover America? There are some fables and tales about them, too. Fables and tales. Well, what else is history, really? For example, a small ship dips and bobs through the waters of the Atlantic Ocean. A prow, a huge carved horse's head. A square sail of brilliant purple billows stiffly before the wind. And men stand on her deck looking toward the horizon. Veiled as they are by the fog and by time and by legend, it's hard to make out what they look like. Small and slender, certainly dark. Perhaps some of them are black. These are Phoenicians, already traders by sea for a thousand years. They long ago sailed from their home on the coast of Africa through the Pillars of Hercules, later called the Straits of Gibraltar, and out into the Atlantic beyond. Even though they returned safely from these ventures, few other Mediterranean sailors followed them. Particularly when we tell our tales of boiling seas, huge fishes with fangs, and the great sea of darkness, an impenetrable scum of green weed. We never say where we have been or where we are going. The trade routes of the world are our secrets. They call us, rightly enough, the silent people. But if we were to tell you we have sailed to Ophir to fetch ivory and apes and peacocks for the Jewish king, sailed round Africa and saw the sun shining, not from the south, but from the north, sailed through the Pillars of Hercules and then to the island of the Blue People, sailed in every sea under every kind of sky. And now we sail to the island of Ultima Thule. Oh, other ships have reached Ultima Thule, blown off course by wild winds, but we come by design to settle in the new land where we can worship according to our conscience. Following the old ways, the tradition, as we have always done, since time began, according to the dictates of our gods, the needs of our gods, our gods need the blood of men to nurture the sky and the seas and preserve the holy unity of blood and soil. Our gods need human sacrifice. And the Greek conquerors at home would deny us this. Look, look there. Is that just the horizon or is it a coast? An edge of land there. Soon the ship comes to rest on a rocky beach, keeling over close to the sand. Its purple sail sags and dies and is furled. The men fling hemp ropes over the side and then wade through the surf and stand on their new land. The year, 480 B.C. The men, Phoenicians. The place, New Hampshire.
Another tale. A ship lies a little way up a winding river. Her prow is a giant swan's head, and she lies silent in the still afternoon. She looks like a great bird nesting in the reeds, rocking gently in the river's current. On shore, a band of men and women, dressed in coarse homespun robes, sit on the rocks at the river's edge. I say this place will do. Soil looks rich, fish in the river, the water's clear. And sweeter than the Tiber. The Tiber is far away now, friends. As far away as a bad dream when you waken. Yes, we can forget. Forget? You'd forget the fire and the dogs tearing our friends apart while the mob howled for more? You'd forget the slaughter? The soil is rich and there are fish in the river. We can forget. We start anew here. The year 64 A.D. The people, Roman Christians. The place, Virginia. On the other side of the continent, a few centuries later, another legend comes in sight of land. Scudding down the Pacific coast in a giant Chinese junk, a Buddhist priest searches for the land of the painted people. He comes ashore somewhere and finds people in this land he calls Fu Sang. Were they Mayans or Peruvians? We may never know. But whoever they were, Ho Shin was not their first visitor. For he says he found five Buddhist monks there already. And then, back on the Atlantic, the Irish. A bold monk called Brother Brendan sails about having remarkable adventures like... Celebrating Easter Mass on the back of a whale and meeting walruses reclining on a foggy beach. But he finally finds... A land full of flowers and the sweet odor of flowers. A musical land, a paradise. The year, 551. The place, Florida. These are shadowy figures on shadowy voyages. More definite in outline are the Vikings, men from Scandinavia who show up clearly on the pages of accepted history and who regularly sailed between Europe and Iceland and Greenland. Rugged men with winged helmets and a scorn of hardship. One Viking hero, Eric the Red, exiled from Iceland for killing a man, sails to Greenland builds a colony, and sires a son. I am Leif, son of Eric. I sailed without my father on this journey, though I begged him to lead us. But he is grown old and reluctant to face the harshness of the sea. His beard no longer flame, more frost now. So I sail with thirty men, and we have found landfalls, those guarded by snow mountains, those stretching in white sands. But now we have come to a land of wild grapevines, and I have therefore named the land Vinland. Here are natural wheat fields and birch and salmon larger than I have ever seen. The year, 
1003. The place, Cape Cod. There were others of these men who may have come to America, and then again may not have, like the Welsh prince Maddock, who saw Kentucky and Missouri as early as 1171, and left a spawn of pale Welsh-speaking Indians to confound the colonists. Or the 30 men who are said to have sailed north around Labrador, west to Hudson Bay, and from there into the interior of this land. A stone was found in Minnesota on which there have been chiseled... We are eight Goths and 22 Norwegians on exploration journey north from this stone. We were out and fished one day. After we came home, found ten of our men red with blood and dead. Ave Virgo Maria... Save us from evil. We have ten men by the sea to look after our ships fourteen days' journey from this island. Year one, three, six, two, thirteen. 62. Is this stone a forgery, fable, or fact? Sorting fable from fact has undoubtedly been a problem to man since he first began to speak. Now in Italy in the 13th century, a man sits in a prison cell and each day tells his visitors of wonderful adventures while they try to sort the fables from the facts. They come to hear him speak of the unbelievable, of Kubla Khan. Look, his cell door's open. As long as he has an audience, you couldn't chase him out of here. You're just in time. Sometimes it gets pretty crowded. That's Marco Polo in the center. Marco, Marco, tell us about Kanbalik. Yes, tell us about the Kanbalik. Kanbalik, city of the great Khan. Well, it was 24 miles in circumference. Perfectly square. I laid out like a chessboard. There lived so many elegant people that the cloth makers had a thousand carts and oh, pack horses loaded with raw silk brought in every day. The roof of the palace was decorated in vermilion and azure and green. Mm. All a varnished so it gleamed in the sun. And inside, a banquet hall that could seat 6,000 guests. Ah, those banquets. I am pleased, Master Marco, that you are favorably impressed. Oh, I am. She's a marvelous dancer, really superb. With our paper currency. Hmm? Uh, as you were saying this afternoon. Oh, yes. Your, your paper currency, it's uh, so much easier to carry than the heavy metal we use. Now, I've heard of a country in the West that issued notes on leather, but this is certainly superior. We Chinese have used paper money for a long time. The Great Khan was quick to see its advantage. 
Kublai Khan seems to respect much of your culture. Yes, we are most happy that he has forsaken his rougher Mongolian ways. Mm, to me, one of the great marvels of your culture, Li Huan, are the black stones that burn. Ah, yes. Well, we have need of a great deal of fuel. We do enjoy our hot bath. <laughs> yes, they take a bath three times a week. Oh. And in winter, every day. Sinful. Imagine such a thing. In winter, every day. Not Christian. How could you bear it, Marco? My friends, on a warmer day like today, crowded together in this little cell as we are, with only that uh, one uh, small window for air, I cannot help uh, <clears throat> but think back fondly on the Chinese bathing habits. So Marco Polo tells his tales about the empire of Cathay. He means well, but you have to be careful. He's a great liar, that about black stones that burn. <laughs> if he'd just stick to his stories of the great bird that can carry off three elephants and uh, the tribe of men with tails like dogs, this one might believe. But the black stones that burn... In 1324, Marco Polo dies. Near the end of his life, a priest leans close and asks whether he wishes to confess the falsehood of some of the stories he has told. He answers, I did not tell half of what I saw, for I knew I would not be believed. So fact and fable conspire to excite the imaginations of medieval Europe as spices and exotic goods travel across deserts and wild mountain passes and through rough seas to bear testimony to the existence of these strange lands. Stroll through a trade fair this afternoon in France and smell the cinnamon and incense, the pungent oranges a dollar apiece, the peppercorns each, each 50 cents. The gentlemen of France wander among the stalls in their sleek fur coats and velvet turbans. They move at a stately pace, since their velvet shoes have pointed toes exactly one foot long, making rapid locomotion difficult without unseemly flapping. Above the laughter and the music and the quarrels, above all, the tradesmen. Keep your Cloves and peppers from the Indies. This dagger from Damascus, sir. The finest delicate silver filigree, enhancing the deadliest blade on earth. Yes, milady. Silk, pure silk. Cloth spun by angels all the way from the empire of Cathay. The blue, a perfect match for your eyes. Peacock feather. See the eye. The tail of the giant ostrich bird. Egret, white egret. This ring, gold brought out of Mali just last winter, my lord. Yes, from the palace of Timbuktu. Yes, my lady, silk, pure silk, cloth spun by angels all the way from Cathay. The yellow, a perfect match. This is the spring festival at Beauvais. And booths line the narrow cobbled streets with their cloth and jewelry and jade and bronze. 
but the fear spills over into the adjacent meadow where peddlers and troopers from all over Europe display their wares and their skill. Hear ye, hear ye, good citizens all, and welcome visitors from far and near. Know you that with all good speed the play of Daniel, performed by my gifted fellow students, and relating the extraordinary miracle of Daniel's deliverance by the Lord from the lion's den, will be performed without delay, just as it was first introduced in the Cathedral of Beauvais centuries ago. Prince's Castle in Portugal, a man from Venice spread some huge parchments out on the thick oak table of the main hall, and the gentlemen crowd around his drawings under the earnest guidance of Captain Perestrello of the Prince's Court. The Venetian is explaining the drawings. You see, gentlemen, these larger galleys are of much stouter construction. Three masts, and at sea they rely mainly on their sails. Oars are used only for entering and leaving harbors, in a flat calm and in emergencies. Gentlemen, perhaps I could add to what our Venetian friend has said here. These ships are extremely dependable over long voyages, most suitable for the new voyages to the south and the east, Yes, and even to the West. Ah, to the West. Though many of us have given up the idea that the Earth is flat, who dares to sail West? Ah, which one of you? <coughs> uh, now, gentlemen, uh, before Prince Henry's arrival, I would review his goals with you. Um, to uh, explore the coast of Africa beyond the Canary Islands and Cape Bonhadour to seek beyond the Cape countries for possible trade. Gentlemen, the prince arrives. His Highness Prince Henry of the Kingdom of Portugal. Illustrello, we'll dispense with formality. The day and our purpose have been sharpened by some dire news. News of the gravest significance. Old friends and comrades, Constantinople has fallen. Oh, oh no. The heathen Turks have captured the city. And so, my friends, I need hardly point out that an important trade route to the east has been irreparably cut off. Our search for new trade routes must be pursued with increased vigor. Perestrello, gather together all our papers and charts and bring them to the council chamber immediately. New trade routes. A greedy Europe becomes obsessed with new trade routes. Years pass. Prince Henry dies. Captain Perestrello dies. 
But the interest in new trade routes continues. Who dares to sail west? Huh? Which one of you? What is it you want? Oh, no. Captain Perestreo is not here. He died two years ago. I am Signora Perestreo, his grieving widow. The captain was a fine man. His papers? You mean his writings and the charts of his voyages? I gave them all to my son-in-law. He has such a great interest in geography. If you see him in town, ask about the charts. Perhaps he will show them to you. You cannot miss him. He is a tall, tall man with auburn hair. His name is Christopher Columbus. This has been another program in the series, Our Nation's Heritage, produced and presented as a public service by Standard Oil Company of California. Read Conflict with Shadows, a fast-paced story of invading darkness, the first in a series of light versus darkness, and the connection with the past to help fight for the future. When the Bathsheba invade, John Vega and Nicolay Dan must come together to stop them from destroying their worlds. It will lead them far beyond known space only to find out that this is more than a battle for territory, but a battle for the souls of mankind. But there is always hope. Pick up a copy of Conflict with Shadows at your favorite online bookstore. Journey into Space BBC presents Jet Morgan in Operation Luna. October the 19th, 1965. In the Australian outback, many miles from the nearest town, stands the rocket ship that is about to carry Jet Morgan and his crew to the moon. Beside Jet, the captain, there are Stephen Mitchell, engineer, Lemmy Barnett, radio operator, and Doc Matthews. That's me. Already the scaffolding has been removed, and the ground crew have taken cover from the shattering rocket blast that is soon to send the moon ship on its way. Within the ship, outwardly calm and strapped to our couches, the four of us who are to make this momentous journey are anxiously waiting for our captain to launch us out into space. Zero minus 45 seconds. Hello, control. Stand by for firing. Standing by and good luck, Luna. Switch on recorder. Recorder on. Doc, gyros. Gyros. Okay, Mitch. Okay, Jet. Doc. Okay. Lemmy. Okay, I think. Stand by for count-off. Don't anybody try to move. 
Don't even try to raise your head. Let me lie down. Oh, I'm only getting comfy. Lie flat and stay flat. Firing in 15 seconds. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, contact! Jet, what's wrong? She's shaking like a leaf. Quiet, let me see your breath. She's shaking herself to pieces. Height 6.8 miles. Velocity 3,750. Oh, oh, what's happening? Jet, I, I can't move. Zero plus 20. Height 12.1 miles. Velocity 4,350. Oh, 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 I can't stand it. Hang on, let me. It won't last long. Oh, why did I ever come? Zero plus 30. Booster's paid out. Oh! Stand by to jettison booster. Oh, I wouldn't go through that again for all the rice in China. You'll be going through it again in just a few moments. Oh, no. Uh, I'll be pushed right through this couch and out the other side. You all set, Mitch? Yes, Jet. Doc? Ready. Okay, Doc. Booster, jettison switch. Stand by. Jettison switch. Contact. Now! Hello, Control. Booster stage jettisoned. Standing by to cut in atomic motor. Waiting for your signal. Over. Hello, Control. Booster now jettisoned. Waiting for your signal. Over. Hello, Control. Hello. What's up, Jet? They don't answer. Hello, Control. Hello. Lemmy, any idea what's wrong? Well, according to the indicator, she's still working. But if you ask me, the shopman you blew the booster off, it must have smashed every valve in the ship. Radar's still working, Jet. Hello, Control. Hello. We can't wait much longer, Jet. We're losing momentum every second. We won't make it. I'll give them one more try. If they don't answer, we'll have to use our own judgment. Hello, Control. Hello. Hello. Let me switch yeah. on the televiewer, stern view. Televiewer, stern view, on. Stand by to cutting the motor, Mitch. We'll give her full power. Don't overdo it, Jet. We can't afford the fuel. Now watch the tank gauges. We'll cut out as soon as number one tank is empty. Are you ready? Ready. Then stand by. Everybody batten down. Okay, Jet. Atomic motor, fire. Lie flat. This is going to be unpleasant. Very unpleasant. Yes, Doc. For the time being, anyway. You all right? Oh, yeah, I think so. 
Oh, boy, we must have hit 15 Gs at least. Mitch? Okay, I think. I. Oh. What's up, Mitch? I don't know. I feel like death. Yeah, lie still. Don't move. Lemmy? Okay, Jet. I'll think so anyway. We'd all better lie still for a few minutes. Well, let's hope we've hit the right speed. We certainly won't be under. You didn't switch off soon enough, and we used up a little of the reserve fuel. You think we might be going too fast, then? Well, maybe, but there's nothing we can do about it yet. I'm sorry, but the acceleration was so great, I thought I'd never press the switch. We must get through to control. Uh, Lemmy, if you feel yep. fit enough, get up and get to work on that radio. Yes, Jet. Oh, soon as you like. I'll get going. Oh, oh, here. Oh, 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 Lemmy. Oh, he's Jet. drifting up to the ceiling. Jet, Jet, get me down. Help. Serves you right for getting off your bed without your boots on. All I did was bend down to pick him up, and I, I shot straight up here. You should have held onto your couch. Can't you throw him up to me? Pull yourself down by the rail, Lemmy. Oh, 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 just to move makes me feel worse. I, I feel just like a feather. Well, you certainly don't weigh anymore. Yeah, is it going to be like this all the way to the moon? I'm afraid so, but you'll get used to it. Now, pull yourself down. It's slowly. Like this? Yeah, that's it. Now, put your magnetized boots on, Lemmy. Yeah. In fact, I think we'd all better put them on. Okay, right, Jack. And keep them on. Keep them on at all times while zero gravity conditions last. What, you, you mean we even wear them when we sleep? <laughs> no, you can take them off then, but keep a good hold in your bunk while you do it or you'll go drifting up to the roof again. Uh, <coughs> well, that's mine fixed. Yeah. Well, there's no trouble standing. What's it like to walk, Doc? Oh, okay. Feel a bit um, lightheaded. Try walking up the wall. I? Yes, go on. Doc should be easy. <laughs> Hey, hey, how's that? <laughs> if you could do that down on Earth, you'd earn a fortune in a circus. Well, come on, come on, try it. Come on, Lemmy, we'll have a walk on the wall. Don't hang up there like that. I feel bad enough as it is. Hey, what about that radio? Yes, cut out the fun and games. Try and get that radio working. How are you feeling, Mitch? Not so good. The radar's still working. Well, that's something. At least we'll be able to calculate our height above Earth. Yes, but we can't depend on the radar. Not for the whole trip. Well, we can depend on it for a few hours yet. Well, for height, yes, but what about course? No, don't you worry, Mitch. Let me all get that radio going. You can bet on it. I hope so. going. Twenty hours he's been at it and not a peep out of the darn radio. Oh, I'll take it easy, Mitch. He's doing his best. He's been working all this time with no sleep. We should never have brought him. He's psychologically unsuitable. That's a matter of opinion, but now he's here, the least we can do is let him get on with it. But why does he have to take so darn long? Doesn't he know every second is carrying us further and further away from the Earth, possibly to our deaths? Oh, it's not that bad, Mitch. We can figure our approximate speed and position if it comes to it. We'll give Lemmy a couple of hours more. Yeah, what if he still hasn't got through to control? Well, we wait until our velocity has dropped to minimum and then turn the ship over and go back. Go back? Go back? This ship's not turning back. It's set out to land on the moon and it's going to do it. But if our speed is too high, we'll use up too much fuel during landing. We'll be on the moon, all right, but how do we get off again? We've got to take a chance. Oh, no, not that kind of chance. I'm not taking any unnecessary risks with the lives of this crew. If the radio isn't working within 48 hours, we're turning back. We're not turning back. Am I the captain of the ship or are you? Sure you are. As long as you carry out the job I hired you for. This ship is mine. I designed her. I built her and she's going to the moon. One more word out of you, Mitch, and I'll put you under arrest. <laughs> oh, that's funny, that is. Go on, try it. Try it. 
Just try and lay a hand on me. All right, all right, Mitch, Jet, break it up. Come on, you're carrying on like a couple of screws. You stay out of this, Doc. If I want your advice, I'll ask for it. Now, look, Jet. It seems we have a case of mutiny on our hands. Mutiny? Well, what else is it? Now, wait a minute, Jet. I didn't... All right, all right, we'll forget it. But if I decide to go back, we go back. Is that clear? doing, Lemmy? Well, I'm, I'm putting it all together again mm-hmm. now and, and hoping. Can I be of any help? Oh, yes, Doc. You can pass us a few things as I ask for them. But be careful. One touch and they go shooting all over the place. <laughs> Talk about light and airy like a fairy. <laughs> okay, I'll be careful. Then uh, hand us that for a start. Yeah. So. Here, uh, how's the mutiny going? Well, they seem to have forgotten it for the moment. And they're trying to work out our position. You think they'll do it? Hmm, I guess so. But it'll take a long time. Yeah, our real hope is you, Lemmy. Yeah. You and that radio. What made Mitch flare up like that? I don't know. Maybe the thought that he wouldn't get to the moon at all. Or maybe the cramped conditions and lack of gravity had something to do with it. There must be some reason why two men perfectly stable on Earth should jump at each other's throat less than 24 hours after leaving it. It just doesn't make sense. I'm not jumping at anybody's throat. Neither are you. Uh, not yet you're not, but watch it. Do you think we should turn back, Doc? Yes. Unless you can get that radio working. However much figuring we do up here, Lemmy, we may overlook something. We can't be sure our deductions are correct. I think so, too. Jet was right. Mitch ought to have known better. No, maybe. That still doesn't excuse Jet for losing his temper. No. Can they hear what we're saying? Mm, If they were listening, they might. Uh, Now, we'll try again. What do you think the chances are, Lemmy? I don't know. Three times I've put this thing together, and each time she should have worked. Mm. And three times I've had to pull it to pieces again. Even the emergency cutting circuits don't work. I can't understand it. Makes me feel like I'm letting the ship down. Oh, don't go getting to feel that way, Lemmy. Uh, well, now, that's it. For the fourth time. Now, let's see if we get any current through her. Yes, it's there. Yes, we've made it. No, no, wait. Don't let's get too excited. We're not through to home yet. Oh, then give them a call, for goodness sake. Try to raise them, Lemmy. Hello, Control. Rocket ship Luna calling control. If you love me and can hear me, let's hear from you. Over. Not a peep. They should be receiving us. There's bags of aerial current oodles of it. They could hear us on Mars with this equipment. Hey, listen. What's that? I don't know. Gives you the creeps, doesn't it? Haven't you any idea what it is? It sounds like music, but like music I've never heard before. Hey, can I hear a a, a voice there? I don't know. I can't make it out. Uh, Jet, Mitch, come over here. Listen to this. Got the radio working? Well, kind of. Have you contacted Control? We tried to, but whether this is them or not, I, I don't know. Well, if it's not Control, then what is it? Search me. Are you sure she's on the right frequency, Lemmy? Yes, so far as I can tell. There's no reason why she should drift off. Not with them crystal stabilizers in there. 
Yeah, it's gone. Packed in again. Ah, uh, try once more, Lemmy. Call them again. Hello, Earth. Hello, Control. Rocket ship Luna calling. Trying to contact you. Can you hear us? Come in, please. Hello, Luna. Can hear you. Strength, 4.5. Hey, it's them. It's them. We made it. Hello. Hello, hello. This is Morgan. Can you still hear me? Hearing you loud and clear. Oh, thank goodness. We've been with you ever since the takeoff. I should think every amateur radio station on Earth has been listening to you. I? You mean you've been hearing us all the time? Except when Lemmy took the radio to pieces. Oh, thank goodness for that. Must be something wrong with your receiving circuit. Well, it beats me. I couldn't find nothing wrong. Nothing. Well, you certainly seem okay now. We can give you all the information you require. Want to take it? Try and stop us. And here it comes. The time is now 3 hours, 11 minutes and 54 seconds universal time. Time from takeoff is 0 plus 27 hours, 11 minutes and 59 seconds. Your distance from Earth is 142,000 miles. Your speed is 4,200 miles per hour. Your position is as follows. Well, that's more like it. Now we know where we are and what we're doing. There's no question of turning back now. According to control, we're on course and our speed is very nearly correct. We should reach the neutral gravitational point between Earth and Moon three Earth days from now. The Moon will then be only 23,600 miles away. Our speed will be only a few miles an hour, but enough to overcome the pull of the Earth entirely. From then on, we'll be falling towards the Moon's surface. If we were back on Earth, we'd drink to this. <laughs> Cold tea is all we have. <laughs> How about a cigarette, Doc? Do you think the oxygen supply could stand it? Yes, I think it might. Shall I get them, Jen? Yes, Doc, one each. And after that, we'll organize the watches. Four hours apiece. Now, I'll take first watch. The rest of you can get some sleep. You'll need it. We all need it. The toughest part of this trip is yet to come. Yeah, Lemmy? Push us up a banana, will you? <laughs> Lemmy, must you always eat your meals upside down on the ceiling? <laughs> what difference does it make? Food goes down, or should I say up just the same? Well, it looks undignified. It's a great idea to part this. Think of the room it saves. Anything more to eat, Lemmy? No, thanks, sir. Okay, then push your empties down. I'll storm away. Here, how about a little after-dinner music? <laughs> oh, no, Lemmy, not that. Well, we've got to do something to pass the time. Why did I ever suggest that each member of the crew should be allowed to bring one small personal object with him? Well, I'm glad you did, Jet. Aren't you? Well, yes, but mouth organs should have been banned. Why couldn't he have brought a, a book or something? Every man to his taste. What was that? A meteor hit the ship. Emergency stations. Blimey, emergency. An animal upside down on the ceiling. Let me get the spacesuits. Don't panic, Jet. I'm on the way. Air pressure constant. We don't seem to be losing any. The meteor bumper must have worked. Now that we'll find out. Meanwhile, get your spacesuits on just in case. Ah, here you are. Red for Doc. Yep. Blue for Jet. Yellow for Mitchin. Oh, I would be green. Now get into them. Don't fix your helmets yet, but carry them with you all the time. Air pressure still constant. I don't think the cabin could have been damaged. Oh, that's a relief. And what about the fuel tanks and the motor? I'll be checking up in just a minute. Right, that's me, Seth. Now get to the radio, Lemmy. Report this to control immediately. Yeah? Now, everybody else, check your indicator readings. See what damage there is. And somebody turn off that buzzer, will you? Well, Doc? Yeah, air supply okay, oxygen supply okay. Fuel tanks and motor seem to be intact. 
No damage there as far as I can see. Hello, Control. Luna calling. Hello, Luna. A meteor just hit us. Emergency procedure now hit us somewhere. Yeah, but Stand we seem to be all right, Jim. Look, Doc, we've by. just been hit by a meteor. It must have done something to us. But what? Well, how should I know? Somebody will have to go out there and look. What? What, out there? O- outside the ship? Into, into nothing? I'll go. No, Mitch. This is my job. Besides, you're more important to the crew than me. I'll go. What, you... You, you mean there's a uh, chance that... It'll uh... be the first time any man has ever been out there in space, and I designed the suit he'll wear. Well, you tested it, didn't you? As far as was possible on Earth, yes. But this is different. This is the real thing. Look, let's not start another argument. We'll draw for it. Well, fair enough. All agreed? Agreed. Right. Uh, Lemmy, get one of the navigational tables. Yes. Open it up, place it face down on the control table with your eyes shut. Right. Okay, here it goes. Uh, we'll guess the page number. Whoever gets nearest goes outside, okay? Uh, Mitch? 136. Doc? Uh, 127. Lemmy? 149. And I'll take, um, 155. Uh, what is it, Lemmy? 153. Then it's me. Stand by to open the airlock. Airlock. Contact. Full pressure. Open the hatch. Right. I'm going down. Fastening helmet. Over to intercom. Helmet fastened. Okay. I'm ready. Close the hatch and exhaust the airlock. Suit now inflating. Air pressure of zero. Open the main door, Doc. I'm going out. Good heavens. What is it, Jet? It's more beautiful than I ever dreamed. What, the door? No, no, the stars. Millions of them. Literally millions. Now, leaving door and walking upside of ship. I'll make a complete circuit. Uh, how's the suit, Jet? Okay? Fine. How are the boots? Perfect. And now hitching the safety lines and walking towards nose. Any sign of where the meteor hit us? Not yet. Yeah. Ask him if he can see the moon. One thing at a time, Lemmy. Finding where that meteor landed is more important. I found it. About 13 feet from the nose. Much damage, Jet? No, nothing to worry about. Must have been minute. Only a small area of the bumper has vaporized. Let's thank our lucky stars it wasn't a larger one. You must come out here, all of you. Come on. This is a sight you've got to see. We can't all go. Somebody must stay. Uh, look, I'll stay, Mitch. You and Lemmy go. You sure, Doc? Yeah, yeah. Um, by way of compensation, you can let me be the first to step on the moon. It's a deal, Doc. Now, if you wouldn't mind opening the airlock again, Lemmy and I will get started. What a sight. Did you ever see so many stars? So many different colors. Yeah, and they don't twinkle like they do on Earth. There's no atmosphere to make them twinkle. So small they look and and bright. Jet, how fast are we going? Uh, About uh, 2,000 miles an hour. But we don't seem to be moving. Look at the moon, Lemmy. Even from here, you can begin to see the mountains and craters, Anna. 
How far off is she now? About 100,000 miles. Oh, no distance at all. Cutney bus ride. Here. Here, Chet. We must be off course. Off course? How do you mean? Well, the moon's not in front of us. It's to one side. She'll be there when we are. She's moving towards our rendezvous all the time. Hey, Chet. Have you taken a look at the Earth yet? Huh? You can make out the African continent quite easily. And the southern ice cap. The, the reflection is brilliant. Did you ever see anything like it? Mitch, if we never get to the moon, the trip was worth it, just for this. Jet, I'm going for a walk down under. See how things look from there. Now, be sure your safety line is secure. We don't want you drifting off. Don't worry, Jet boy. Oh, if only Becky could see me now. She wouldn't know if I was on my head or my heels. No more than I do. Oh, yeah, what's that? It's the funny music again. Hello. Hello. Jet. Jet. Jet! Jet, can you hear me? Jet! Hello, Lemmy. Hello, oh, Lemmy, what's wrong? Jet, that music. Did you hear it? Music? What music? Oh, you must have heard it. It was like it was right inside me. Lemmy, pull yourself together. I heard no music. All I heard was you screaming. But I was calling you before that. Didn't you hear me? No. Jet, look, let's get back into the ship. I heard it, I tell you. I heard it. Uh, calm down, Lemmy. Stay where you are. Now, don't attempt to re-enter the ship until I'm alongside you. I heard it, I'll tell you. The same kind of music we heard when I, when I got the radio working. Only this time, it was much louder. Like it was right inside me helmet. Oh, it was uncanny. It scared the living daylights out of me. It scares me now just to think of it. Lemmy, if there had been any music, it must have been coming through your radio. And we'd have heard it too. But there was, I'll tell you. I was calling you when it first came on. But you didn't hear me till it stopped. Lemmy, lie on your bunk. Get some sleep. I don't need sleep. Here. You don't believe me, do you? None of you believe me. Now, come and lie down. You believe me, don't you, Doc? You heard that music coming over the radio, didn't you? I wasn't out there, Lemmy. I was here in the ship. What's happening to him, Mitch? What do you think's happening to him? I told you. He's unstable. A psychological misfit. have been listening to episode one of Journey into Space with Andrew Foles as Jet Morgan, Alfie Bass as Lemmy, Guy Kingsley Pointer as Doc, and David Williams as Mitch. Other parts were played by John Casabon. The orchestra was conducted by Van Phillips, who also composed the music. Journey into Space was written and produced for the BBC by Charles Chilton. Looking for a book that combines the Christian faith, with a fantasy adventure? Creator's Call does just that. 18-year-old Edward has been raised with tales of distant lands where dragons and other strange beasts dwell. He dreams of one day joining the Keepers, who fight against them to keep the land safe, however, life's obstacles keep him firmly rooted in the small town of Cadestone. When 17-year-old June comes passing through, following a dream given to her by the creator of the universe, Edward's life is about to change. Pursued by a demon-possessed man, the two of them are forced to flee to areas where dragons and monsters are not just tales but reality. June and Edward eventually discover what the demons want from them.
Is it possible to defeat this evil and save everyone from the darkness that threatens their lands? Creator's Call is a Christian fantasy novel with clear Christian messages. A book that glorifies God while taking you on an adventure. Pick up a copy of Creator's Call today. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gun Smoke, starring William Conrad. The story of the violence that moved west with young America. The story of a man who moved with it. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. Chester had been helping me with some paperwork after the regular day ended... And we didn't get through until about 10 o'clock. And we were both kind of tired. Well, I sure never did think I'd hold out, Mr. Dillon. I got a cramp in my hand and a crick in the neck. What I need is a beer. <laughs> I'll join you, Chester. Locked up the office and walked down to the Texas Trail with Chester. I guess the best thing that could be said for the night was that it was still. Not cold, not warm. Somewhere in that between that makes you wish it would be one thing or the other. Or maybe it was because we were tired that it didn't feel right. The bar wasn't crowded, and right off, Kitty came over to our table with beer. I thought she looked kind of worried. Hard day, Matt? Oh, no. No, nothing much. Oh. I declare, Miss Kitty, this beer tastes darker than usual. New brew, probably, Chester. Yeah, I suppose. Say, Matt, you ever seen the stranger before? The tall one, the bar? Huh? Huh, no, no. My heavens, Mr. Dillon, he is a lofty man, and that's for sure. Look at him stretch out. Yeah. What about him, Kitty? Well, I don't know. Sam gave me the eye a bit ago just before you came in. Huh? You trying to make trouble? Sam's not sure. Fellow's been drinking straight for more than two hours, and he doesn't say anything. He just looks like he's getting ready. Maybe waiting for something. Yeah. Is the woman with him? Yeah. He was a lean, almost stringy man, better than usual tall. And he might have served in the army once because he wore his gun butt forward. As we sat, Chester and me drinking our beer, he turned around a couple of times and looked at the door. I never saw a man with eyes as gray or with a skin to his face so dry and tough you'd swear you could get sparks off it with a flint. 
The woman standing next to him talked loud and often, but he didn't appear to be listening much. It was like Kitty said, he he was waiting. About an hour went by, and the place began to quiet down. Most of the men drifted out to wherever their way was taking them. Excuse me, Mr. Dillon. You uh, want to get on back, Chester? Well, yes, sir, I was thinking about it. This beer is so dark, it's making me sleepy. <laughs> well, you go ahead. I'll see you in the morning. You stay? Yeah, yeah, for a while, I think. On account of that tall fellow? Yeah, maybe. Guess I'll get a little whiskey and sugar. Might keep me awake. No, you go on, Chester. It's all right. Jack, how long you If it's all the same to you, Mr. Dillon, I ain't sleepy. But, Jack, I'm tired. There's a hotel down the way, miss, that could put you up. Hill. Shut up. Nobody asked you. Oh, now, Jack, you ain't got no call to talk to the man like that. He's just being helpful. Say, Mr. Dillon, Chester, be quiet. I'm tired. I want to go to bed. Trip on the stage and traveling all day. I, I swear I've never been so. You talk too much. Be quiet. Stay in here with me. But Jackie. You've been talking ever since we come in here. Stop or I'm going to hit you. Might not be a bad thing if you did, Mr. Dillon. If there's anything in this world I hate, it's a woman who does nothing but clobber her guns. Uh, Kitty. I bet he is miserable to be wed to, though. What do you reckon ailing him? I don't know, Chester. You're still here, huh, Matt? Uh, yeah. Uh, sit down a minute, will you, Kitty? Yeah, sure. You, uh, don't know their names, do you? No. I came in on the six o'clock stage from Oklahoma Territory. That's all I know. She's been talking a lot, but mostly about clothes and liquor. He don't say anything. Yeah. You think they're married? She's wearing a ring. Mm-hmm. I've never seen a man drink as much, Matt. It's like water with Honey! Him. Hey, you! Honey! Uh, yeah. <laughs> Excuse me, Matt. Yeah, sure. Drink then, sure. What do you want to drink? Huh? Sure. Huh? You want whiskey and sugar, don't you? Thank you, honey. Sure. Where do you think you're going? I'm going to freshen up, Jack. I'm coming right back. See, you do. The woman had just got out of sight when we heard the horses coming down the street outside. There were only six of us left in the place. Sam, Kitty, Chester, and me, the stranger at the bar, and a cowboy sleeping it off at a table across the room. The tall man called Jack, with the sound of the horses, turned to the door, and there was a gun in his hand. You fellas at the table, get up. Come over here. Wait. Well, I kind of wondered what you were waiting for. I know you've been wondering. That's why you've been hanging around. I don't want no trouble with you. Stay out of the way, you won't get hurt. Why don't you put your gun away, mister? Don't bother me. There's trouble coming through that door any minute. Put it back. I don't allow gunplay in Dodge. 
What you allow ain't up to you now, mister. If you're in trouble, it's my job to protect you and your wife. This is private trouble. If you want part of it, I'll give it to you right now. In the belly. Jack, they're here, outside. Yeah, I know. We can get out the back. I ain't running no more. You either. Come on, get behind the bar. Yeah, honey. You two fellas on hit your belts. Leave them lay where they fall. Go on. Honey, you give me a gun, will you? I'll give you one, I'll give you one. Wait a minute. Okay. Now you two get around behind the bar. All right. At the end. You. You and the lady. Now listen, you can't shoot up this place. Sam, do what he says. Chester and I did as we were told and got behind the bar along with Kitty and Sam. The tall man picked up our guns and tossed one to the woman and then dropped the others beside him on the floor. And then we waited. All of us behind the bar, except for the cowboy drunk asleep at the table. I only had that mirror in for a month. It's going to be busted for sure. Honey, we should have kept going. Got the train in the morning farther west. We'd have had to stop somewhere. This is as good a place as any. Listen, mister, I'm going over and get the boy sleeping at the table there. He's going to get hurt. You move an inch from where you're at and I'll shoot you. Now shut up, all of you. I hear him out there. Yeah. Start shooting when that door swings in. Mr. Dillon? Stay down, Kitty. Don't worry, Matt. Here's a Stop talking to the dogs. They'll be in a saloon. Sure. Oh, I know, Farrell. Well, come on. Might as well start looking in here. Yeah, well, okay. Let's do the drink. There he is. The shooting went on for about five seconds, and when the glass started to come down behind us, we covered up. And at that, I felt a warm trickle along the side of my face where a splinter had slashed me. There wasn't anybody behind the bar hurt beyond a scratch or two from the glass. But out there, by the door and sprawled out beyond onto the walk, there were four men. They never had a chance. They'd never have another. Watch out for the glass, Jack. We got him, we got him. Yeah. Yeah, we got him, honey. When I'm still alive. Who is it? It's Acton. Let me. <laughs> Never did like him. Come on, let's go. All right, Jackie. Sorry, we messed up your place, honey. Don't you try coming after us, mister. Jack's had a taste of blood. Come on, come on. Jackie, we're going to have to ride now? Yeah. Oh, honey, I'm tired. I'll take it easy later. Are you all right, Kitty? No, I, I think so. Look at that mirror. Just look at it. Chester, get some guns from the office. Saddle up and get back here, huh? Yes, sir. Yeah, all right now, folks. There's just been a little shooting, that's all. Everything's going to be just... Kitty, get Doc quick. What is it, man? This man isn't dead. Huh? 
Well, go on. Hurry up, will you? Well, yeah, sure. She ran out into the night for Doc. And I stayed in the Texas trail watching the life flow out of the bullet hole in the chest of the man the killers had called Acton. Return for the second act of Gunsmoke in just a moment. But first, you can help your fighting men and our children win the fight for life if you act now. On the battlefront, our fighting men need blood to replace the precious substance they have so valiantly lost. Only through contributions to your Red Cross fund drive can we keep up that lifeline of blood to our wounded men. But time is running out. Give now. Your Red Cross must also have funds to transform blood into anti-polio serum. The polio season is just around the corner. Red Cross Gamma Globulin is the one weapon that will spare our children from death or the crippling paralysis of polio this summer. Polio won't wait. Your community, your neighbors, perhaps your own child, can be saved from the horrible effects of the dread disease if we do something now. Your Red Cross will not distribute the anti-polio serum. It will be sent to critical areas by government health agencies. There will not be enough to protect every child this year, but many thousands will be spared polio paralysis this summer because you gave to your Red Cross. When your Red Cross fund volunteer calls, give generously. Do it today. You give, they live. Now, the second act of Gunsmoke. His eyes were open, but he didn't see me. And when I talked to him, he didn't hear. While I waited for Doc, I went through his papers. His name was Brad Acton. That's all I could find. About two minutes later, Kitty came back with Doc. Didn't take Doc long to shake his head. Oh, poor fella. He's done that. There's not a living chance. Yeah, if I could just get him to talk. we got to find out who he is and what they've done, those two. I don't know. He's pretty near gone. We can't... Yeah. Acton? Acton, can you hear me? Acton? Acton? Acton, that fellow, Jack Farrow. He and the woman. What did they do? Oh, there's no use. Matt, he Acton. Can't say nothing. Now listen to me, Acton. Matt. Acton, who are they? Uh, Why did they shoot you? He's trying, the poor devil. He Come on, him. come on. Now you're wasting time. I gotta get after him. Now what did they do? I'm dying. I'm dying. We've all gotta die. Oh, Matt. That... It ain't kindly, mister. Now, I want you to wake up. You hear what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. I hear you. If I was on my feet... Now, listen to me. Pharaoh. I heard you call him Pharaoh. And a woman. Now, what about him? 
Why did you come gunning for him? Had it come. Why? What did they do? It don't matter now. It matters. If you're going to die, get it off yourself. Now, come on. You and your pals there. If you did nothing wrong, you'll die more comfortable. Oh, Matt, let him be. It's not Matt, fair. Don't. What about it, Acton? Matt, no, you That's can't enough, Doc. Acton. California. Out in California. Pharaoh, me, and the boys. We held up a stage in Pharaoh. He took the money and lit out with that woman. We we've been following. Look out for her. She's mean with a gun. Martha Luke. He's gone, Matt. Yeah. I guess you had to do it that way, Matt. But... But what? Nothing. All set, Mr. Dillon. All right, Chester. You going after him, Matt? Why not? They've done murder, haven't they? You have to figure the odds of a man forgiving you for what you do when a thing has to be done. And then you split the difference, and depending on the reasons for doing it, you feel better or worse. I had to do what I did because I had to find out about them. But it didn't help. Even if he was a gunman, I'd given no peace to a dying man. And for that he had to die harder. A man a long way from home. Chester and I rode out into the east, the way we figured Pharaoh and his wife would be headed. Sun's coming up, Mr. Dillon. I got eyes. Yes, sir. Now, there's a homestead up around the bend. We'll stop and find out if they've seen anything. fixing to fetch some water when I heard him. They stopped, huh? Yeah. The woman looked tuckered out. Never see a woman with all them skirts ride, ride the way she did. It was some picture. How long did they stay? Five minutes, maybe. Wife had some coffee and they drank it, scalding, and then took off. Headed east? Mm, yeah. They wanted to know how far to Kinsley or maybe they wanted to know the next station and I told them Kinsley... Oh, Santa Fe's doing there for Hutchinson about eight. They do something wrong, Marshal? Just four murders back in Dodge. Come on, Chester. 
The Pharaohs had enough start on us that if they got the train in Kinsley before we caught up, we'd have to use the telegraph. I hope they could be stopped further down the line. With killers like that, there'd be a lot of shooting. And I figured it was my job to be there when it happened. We rode hard. It lacked a couple of minutes before eight when we saw the smoke of the engine. We still had a couple of miles to go to reach the station, and she was moving out when we got there. I swung aboard and held out a hand for Chester. My, running like that, give me a stitch in the side. And the puffs. Uh, take it easy, Chester. I sure wish we'd have had time to find out if they's on this train, Mr. Dillon. If they ain't, we've lost them good. Well, we'll see. Now, look, there's a lot of people in those cars up ahead. The Ferris see us, and they're going to start shooting. And I don't want that. So go slow. If we see them first, get out of sight. We'll wait until they get off the train. Yes, sir. Okay. No, Chester, put away the gun. No shooting on the train. Yes, Mr. Dillon. We started from the last car and moved up. That way they wouldn't see us first. I hoped we could get them without any gunplay at all. Mostly for folks who would get hurt. But I didn't have any stomach for shooting a woman, even if she was a killer. We got to the third car when Chester spotted them. There they are, Mr. Dillon. All right, get back. Okay, we'll just stay here. Conductor's coming this way. Good. Well, howdy, Marshal. Mr. Heinsen. You on a pleasure ride or business? Business, Mr. Heinsen. That couple there in the fourth, fifth seat from the front. The tall gent? Yeah, and the woman. Yeah, I wondered about them when they got on. Sure are a funny pair. She looks plum wore out. They both done murder. Oh, Marshal, there's kids in the car. I want to get them without any shooting. As long as they don't see us, it'll be all right. Now, where's your next stop? About 30 miles down the line. Now. Well, we'll try to figure something out. I hope you can, Marshal. The train rolled on. I saw Miss Farah take a kid on her lap, play with it. And the mother in the next seat looked on with fond eyes. I wonder what she would have said if she knew... Jack Farrow just looked out the window. We didn't make a move at the next stop. Two men got off, and there were still some 20 people left in the car besides the killers. About 15 miles beyond, the train pulled up again. I could see a big herd of cattle crossing the tracks. It was going to take a few minutes. Mr. Heinsen came down the aisle to the platform where we were standing. Hey, Marshal, I got an idea. See what you think. Yeah? We'll be about 10 minutes waiting until that herd gets across. How about if I tell the folks in the car they can get out stretch legs for a bit? Might give you a chance. To... All right, go ahead. Hey, stay there, folks. There's a little delay for a cattle crossing. If you want to get off for a spell, stretch out a bit. There's plenty of time. We watched. And slowly, one at a time, they made up their minds. The women glad to let the kids work off steam. The men to size up strange land or somebody else's herd. And they straggled out. But there was one old couple that wouldn't move, though. And I saw Mr. Heinsen making an eye and a shrug at me. And then they changed their minds and hobbled off. 
and I'd left the car empty except for the Pharaohs, Chester, Mr. Heinsohn, and me. That's your deal, Marshal. Lucky they didn't decide to get off. I didn't think they would. All right, go ahead, Mr. Heinsohn, and get those people down the line a bit, huh? Yes, sir. All right, Chester. She must have had her gun already in her hand, wanting to give it to Farrah to hold. She was fast. One minute she was upright in the seat, and then she was gone. Fire into us from behind the seat. Throw out your gun, Miss Farrow. Throw out your gun and stand up. I don't want to hurt you. I'll kill you. I'll kill you. Look out, Mr. Dillon. She's going for his gun. Yeah. No, no, it's Chester, give me a hand, will you? Now stop it. Stop it. like a crazy woman. It took both of us to hold her, and we couldn't even do that right until we had her handcuffed to the seat. And then she shut up. We just sat there looking at her husband's body. When we got off at the next stop to wait for the next train back to Dodge, Jack Farrow was taken away in a wagon to be buried. His wife stood by the tracks watching it as it moved off. And it wasn't until the wagon became a dust cloud out on the plain that she started to cry. Gunsmoke, under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by Anthony Ellis, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were Michael Ann Barrett and Tom Tully, with John Daner, Lawrence Dobkin, and Jack Crucian. Parley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Gunsmoke is heard by our troops overseas through the facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke.
scholastic standards are rigid at Madison High, you must have a sense of humor to attend. Listen in to Eve Arden as English teaching our Miss Brooks any Sunday evening and you'll get the point. When Eve takes over the class, everybody's favorite subject is comedy. So don't forget your Sunday Eve is our Miss Brooks over most of these same CBS radio stations. Be sure to enjoy her tomorrow night. George Walsh speaking. America's 45 million radio families listen most to the CBS radio network. Into Shadows Fire, the second book in the world of Strangers and Pilgrims. A fast-paced story of the continuing battle between light against dark and learning about the past will help fight against the shadows of the future. Over a decade has passed since the FTL ship has returned and John Vega and Nicolay Dan have once again joined the effort known now as the Union of Light to fight the newly formed Paganic Imperium. On the world of Sulia, help is needed. The Union must help save the people of the city of Galgani from being tortured and killed because of their beliefs. They must flee their city and begin an exodus across the stars. But the Empire will not let them go that easily, for they are the chosen people of the Lord of Light. But first, they must find a fleet of their own. Thermani Electric escaped with the Bathshe from the Shadow World and is now the Emperor of the Imperium. The only person he trusts, Sashiana makes her way back with the others only to question her own soul. As he remembers his own past and hearing of Sashiana's return, he is encouraged that now he can take his place in the galaxy. Look for Into Shadows Fire. Pick it up at your favorite online bookstore. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. Roy Vickers, New Britain Mutual, Johnny. Hi, Roy. How'd you like to try some Creole cooking? Okay, what's up? One of the bellhops at the St. Agnes Hotel in New Orleans had quite a time last night. He opened the safe and walked out with $7,500 in cash and a diamond necklace... Worth a cool 25000 So help me, Roy. I didn't know bellhops had so much fun. That isn't all. He also stole a station wagon belonging to the hotel manager, not to mention the manager's wife. What do you want back? Mainly that necklace. It's the property of one of our clients. She was stopping at the St. Agnes and had it stowed in the hotel safe. Any line on the bellhop? Not a trace so far. The wife? Don't be funny. Can you hop a plane down there and see what's happened for us? Sure, Roy. <laughs> Tonight and every weekday night, Bob Bailey and the transcribed adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator... Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the New Britain Mutual Insurance Company, Hartford, Connecticut. The following is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the Valentine matter. Expense account item one, $175 and no cents. Airfare and the incidental cost it takes to get from Hartford to New Orleans. 
Once there, I was more than surprised to discover the police had wound up the whole case. The prodigal bellhop, along with the 7500 in cash, the diamond necklace, the station wagon, even the manager's wife, had all been recovered. Everything and everyone tearful, but intact. I reported this development to all parties concerned, phoned the airport for a reservation back to Hartford, which they said would be the following afternoon, and then looked around for something to do. I found a spot on Burgundy Street that seemed to be less crowded than the others and settled down for the evening. That's where it happened. He was sitting alone, tall, gray-haired, rugged. A face full of some 50-odd years, I guessed, and full of some other things no one could guess. It was three drinks at the bar before I made out who he was, who he had been. A man who was once big, in a way that only prohibition made them big. This seat taken? No. Mind if I sit down, Mr. Valentine? Well, you can't be that old. How old? Old enough to recognize me. Recognize you from your picture. Long time ago. Time. Hmm. I guess I could tell you more about that than anybody. You a cop? No, I'm an insurance investigator. You were a cop once? Once. Can I buy you a drink, Mr. Valentine? Dan's enough. Sure. You're doing better than the boys in the force. I've been living in New Orleans for three months now. Nobody's calling me. Any reason why they should? No. No, there isn't. But then no one's ever figured out a way to stop a policeman from making a visit when he wants to. Uh, that's true. And yeah, a funny thing. There's a lot of policemen I've liked in my day. Visiting policemen. That is, on certain days. You're too young to remember much about it, Dollar, but... A long time ago, a bunch of old women made a law called the uh, Volstead Act. Sure. Prohibition. Everybody heard about it. Including the old women who passed the law. You see, this law was supposed to be for the other guy, not for them. Anyhow, a lot of people started bottling up violations of this Volstead Act. You tired? No, not a bit, Dan. Well, I got me a lot of money and a lot of trouble. Thirteen years for income tax evasion, finally. Ended just three months ago when I came here to live happily ever after. Funny. No. New Orleans is a nice, quiet place to live. Better still, no one's bothering you. That's the way I want to keep it. And they can pass a thousand stupid laws, and I'm not going to fall for any of them. Everything the book says, everything in order. How's that sound? Pretty good. You believe it? Yes, I do. Then I've got my point over. I'm flattered that you recognize me, Dollar. I paid back ten days for every one I took. Now, all I ask is that you don't ask the police to bother me. Okay. As far as I'm concerned, Dan, you didn't even have the dinner I'm about to buy for you. Dollar, it's nice to come out of prison and be recognized by a nice guy. Where we go, Jimmy Moran's? That's where we went, and it was a swell dinner. Only Dan Valentine didn't eat much of it. He tried to smile and crack wise, but there was a sadness about him that stood in the way. I wanted to ask him more questions about those days back when, but I didn't. We dropped into a couple of other places. The Absinthe House, Joe Glorioso's. We listened to some jazz and drank Sazeracs and walked along Canal Street. Finally, we shook hands and said goodnight. Expense account item two, $26.26. 26 Hotel, board, and miscellaneous. 
The next morning, I packed my bags, checked out of my hotel, and was about to take a limousine out to Mobile Airport. Oh, uh, Mr. Dollar? Yeah. A message for you. Oh, thanks. It was from a police officer on the New Orleans force, an inspector DeBaca. Could I drop by before I left town? I went right over and met DeBaca, a tall, lean, gray-haired man with 30 years' service who kind of puzzled me at first. Thanks for coming by, Donner. Sure. Sit down. What's up? The bellhop take back his confession on that necklace theft? No, no. This is something else, Donner. Dan Valentine. Oh. You met him about 6.30 last night. You had two drinks with him, and you went over to Moran's and had dinner. You went to two other places. You left him at 11.30. Yeah. I also brushed my teeth when I got back to the hotel, but I bet you can't tell me what color my pajamas Now, take it easy. Just take it easy. Maybe I'm saying this bad. He doesn't know it, but we've been keeping an eye on Danny ever since he showed up in New Orleans. Just so happened you were with him last night, and you did business with us here yesterday afternoon. So? We want to know if you had any business with Dan Valentine. Don't be funny, Inspector. Okay, okay. Now, don't get huffy. Let me put it this way. Dan came to New Orleans three months ago, bought a house out in Jefferson Parish. He hired a housekeeper, bought himself a little car... Took up fishing every afternoon or just walking? Nothing wrong with that? No, of course there isn't. We liked it fine. The boys in the car drive by now and then, look at him. Just look. No questions, no knocking on the door. When we see Danny in town, we turn the other way. Just look, you see? Sure. Now, he doesn't have any visitors. No old pals from Chicago or New York or Detroit come to see him. He lives alone. And he likes it. That's what he told me. You're his first visitor. Now, I just wondered. You wondered wrong, DeBaca. Okay, okay. I had to ask about it. You know how it is. Yeah. Excuse me. Yeah. Yeah? Okay. Right on cue. Your pal just stopped a couple of bullets. Huh? Danny Valentine. Come on. According to the uniformed officer who had put in the call, a newspaper boy had found Valentine lying on the sidewalk and roused the neighborhood. One of the residents had carried him inside. The ambulance crew stood by the bed as we came in. Valentine was lying on his back, the white chenille spread under him changing to a deep red. Two bullets had ripped ragged holes in one shoulder through flesh and bone. But he was just as self-contained as ever. I got the idea you were going to stay out of trouble, Dan. I didn't know I was in any trouble. Are you, Dollar? Okay. You went to the police after all? No. The inspector called me in. About you, Dan, but let's forget that for now. How'd this happen? This? Cleaning my gun. You're a loser, Dan. You're not supposed to have a gun. Oh, you know me and the law. We sometimes didn't hit it off. Odd, where is the gun? What gun? The gun you were cleaning when you were walking down the street and shot yourself. I swallowed it. Now, look. Somebody's taken a couple of shots at you, Dan. Nobody can tell us anything about it but you so far. We don't want you murdered. Well? Okay, boys. Get the ambulance back. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You're hurt. You're going to the police hospital. No, no. I've served my time and I'm clean. Being shot at even in this state doesn't make you a criminal. Dollar. Yeah, Dan. Do me a favor. Would you phone a private hospital and have me taken there? Go ahead, Johnny. Take it easy, Dan. I did as he asked. A crew from one of the large private hospitals was out there in a matter of minutes. And an hour and a half later, Dan Valentine was operated on and the bullet successfully removed from his shoulder. 
I waited around until he was taken to a private room, and Inspector DeBaca waited with me. Dollar? Yeah? Why don't you go back to Hartford? This isn't any of your business. I know. My plane takes off at four. I'll be on it. Why are you waiting around here? Oh, to see how he is, I guess. Your pal of yours? I just met him last night. You know that. But you're waiting around? Yeah. You want me to tell you why you're waiting around? You want to make sure he's okay. You met him last night, and outside of what you ever read or heard about him, you don't know him from a load of coal. But you want to make sure he's going to be all right. Well, so do I. Because in that room and on that bed lies quite a man. Well, that about summed it up. No matter what he had been or what he had done, Dan Valentine was quite a man. It was the same thing that had caused me to go over to him the night before and start a conversation. The same thing that caused me to believe his plans for living a quiet life in New Orleans. He came out of the anesthetic a half hour later and he sent for me. Hi. Hi. They say it's going to be okay. Oh, sure, sure. This is nothing. I just wanted to thank you for giving me a hand. DeBaca could probably help you more. All you have to do is tell him who shot you and why. I shot myself, and just for something to do. Look, Dan, I have a fair idea of how tough things were for you and how tough they can be now. But Inspector DeBaca understands it, too. He'll do everything he can to help you, but you have to help him, Dan. DeBaca's a good boy. You're right. You'll tell him who shot you? If there was any way he could help me, I'd let him know first. I'll handle this myself. Guess you'll want to be getting your airplane. Yeah. Good luck, kiddo. Same to you. I went back to my hotel, picked up my bags, and took a cab to Mobilant Airport. My plane had developed engine trouble, and there was going to be a five-hour delay. I killed time at the bar and in the restaurant and just standing around looking at the field at night. By that time, the newspapers carried the story of the attempt on Dan Valentine's life. It was as skimpy as the story Dan had told himself, and it troubled me. Uh, Mr. Dollar. Yeah? Long distance call for you from Hartford. Uh, you can take it right in there. Oh, thanks. Johnny Dollar. Roy Vickers, Johnny, at New Britain Mutual. Glad I caught you. Just waiting for my plane back to Hartford now. The story about Dan Valentine's in all the papers up here. Have you read it? Yeah, I was in on it, in a way. Somebody shot at him today. He won't tell who. Says he'll handle it himself. Can you find out, Johnny? Well, I don't know. Why? We carry a $50,000 policy on him. Somebody's trying to kill him. We'd like to know all about it. You mean I can stay here and work on this? Yes. Okay, Roy. There'll be another intriguing episode in our story of the Valentine matter tomorrow. Tomorrow, all the King's men that could be the New Orleans police force try to keep one man alive. And they almost do it. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar.
Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, is transcribed in Hollywood. Written by John Dawson, it is produced and directed by Jack Johnstone. Be sure to join us tomorrow night, same time and station, for another exciting episode of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. Roy Rowan speaking. in radio, the amazing interplanetary adventures of Flash Gordon and Dale Arden. These thrilling adventures come to you as they are pictured each Sunday in the Comic Weekly, the world's greatest pictorial supplement of humor and adventure. The Comic Weekly, now printed in 32 tabloid-sized pages, each page in full four colors, is distributed everywhere as a part of your Hearst Sunday newspaper. Racing high above the earth, comfortably seated in a giant airliner, Flash Gordon, internationally famous athlete, looks admiringly across the aisle at Dale Arden, the lovely young companion of his air voyage. The minds of both are intent on the terrible destruction which for many months has been approaching the earth with terrific speed. The new planet hurtling through space directly in the path of the earth. Suddenly there's a violent jar. The plane lurches into a spinning nosedive. Flash Gordon's trained muscles carry him across the aisle to the frightened girl. He gathers her in his arms and leaps free of the falling plane and pulling the ripcord of his parachute, glides to earth. Don't be frightened, Dale. The plane has crashed, but we're safe. Yes, thanks to you. Hold fast. We're landing now. Careful. Easy. There. Are you all right, Dale? Yes. Good, good. Oh, look, Flash. There's a round steel tower. Where can we be? Why, why, that's the laboratory of the great scientist, Dr. Hans Zarka. Why, he's coming this way. I'll call him to help us. I, I hope you'll pardon us for breaking in on you so unceremoniously, Doctor, but you see, we had to bail out. I know you for what you are, spy. Come to steal my secret. But I have the answer to that. Come with me. Put that gun away, Professor Zarkov. The man is mad, Dale. We'll have to humor him. All right, Professor. All right, we'll come with you. Step down this ladder into this tower. Down, I say. All right, all right. There, now, we are in my rocket ship, and in ten seconds we will be on our way to the new planet. We will all die. Die for science. <laughs> oh, Flash, the doctor is mad. This rocket ship is rushing away from the Earth with the speed of light, right into the path of the new planet. Hold tight, Dale. We'll escape somewhere. To the new planet. <laughs> to the new planet. We three will save the Earth. Dr. Zarkov, 
there's still time to swing your rocket ship out of the path of the new planet. No, no, no. <laughs> what, what will you gain for science if we're all killed in the crash? I know who you are, Flash Gordon. The world's greatest athlete. But your trained strength will not save you. Only my mind, the mind of Zarkov, the scientist, can save you. Can save any human soul upon the earth. Be careful, Flash. He's reaching for the controls. Stand aside, Dr. Zarkov. <laughs> Feel it. The gravitation pull of the new planet. We crash in five seconds. <laughs> the rocket ship hit the planet. Dr. Zarkov and Dale are thrown from the rocket ship unconscious. Flash is thrown clear of the wreckage and lands on his feet uninjured. He rushes to the side of the unconscious girl, picks her up, and starts to carry her toward the distant towers of a city on this weird new planet. Suddenly, strange soldiers armed with ray guns appear, and capturing Dale and Flash, force them to come with them to the throne room of Ming the Merciless, Emperor of Mongo and Supreme Ruler of the Universe. Exalted means, most merciless majesty of Mongo, supreme ruler of all the peoples of the new planet, thy slave to Lucy. Slaves, sing forward the earth people. Thy slaves obey, O Ming the merciless. Take your hands off me. I'm no slave. I'll meet your emperor as a free man and an equal. <laughs> so, Earthman, you are a free man and my equal. Throw him to the red monkey man in the arena. I would be forced with this free man, my equal. There is thy freedom, Earth man. Now you go into the arena to meet the red monkey man of Mongo. Don't worry, Dale. Emperor Ming, I'll show you that I, a free man from the Earth, am more than a match for your brainless red monkey man. Flash reaches the bottom step leading to the arena. He leaps and swings at the nearest red monkey man. Then, grasping the falling man-beast under the armpit, Flash whirls him around as a flail, knocking the others in all directions. Emperor Ming, fearing that his monkey men will all be killed, orders his soldiers to destroy Flash with their ray guns. In the midst of the confusion, Princess Aura, the beautiful young daughter of Emperor Ming, calls to Flash. Quick, brave man, this way, here to my balcony. Flash leaps to the royal balcony and joins the gorgeously jeweled princess, who commands the slaves to keep back while she takes Flash through a secret door and into a passage leading to a private elevator. The two get in, and Aura closes the door and presses the switch. Who are you, beautiful maiden? I am the Princess Aura, only daughter of Ming the Merciless. Princess, I owe you my life. You are brave and handsome and strong. You must not die so young. I have never seen anyone like you, Earthman. Where I come from, Princess, there are many stronger men and better looking. But tell me, Princess, where are you taking me? I am taking you to the private landing frames of my own rocket car. There you will be safe. We have arrived, Earthman. Get in this rocket car. No one can harm you here. But, Princess, hurry, I don't... Hurry, hurry. The Princess Aura. How am I to rescue the Earth girls? They are off. That is why you are in my private rocket car, Earthman. Why, what do you mean? Bail Arden shall never be rescued by you. The princess! As I... for you, Earthman, 
You shall love me or die. Meanwhile, back in the palace, Emperor Ming is talking with Dale Arden. Your companion Flash Gordon has escaped, but not for long. My men will soon capture him. What are you going to do with me, Emperor Ming? You are pleasing to me, Earthwoman. You will become my wife. Never! I don't love you! We men of Mongo have no human traits, no love, no mercy, no kindness. Whether you love me or not makes no difference. You shall become my wife as soon as the ceremony can be arranged. Your Majesty, look into the spaceograph. Our city is being bombarded by the space gyros of the lion men. The lion men order the entire space fleet to the attack. terrific battle which takes place between Emperor Ming's space fleet and the gyros of the Lion Men, the attacking gyros are driven off. The rocket ship in which Flash Gordon has been held captive is destroyed, and Flash is thrown to the ground unconscious. He opens his eyes to find himself staring up into the great bearded face of Thun, Prince of the Lion Men. Thun lets his great sword fall as he sees Flash Gordon's white skin. Who art thou, white-skinned youth? Speak. Answer me before I cleave thy white body in pieces. Art thou a new kind of soldier of Ming the Merciless? I am the sworn enemy of that fiend Emperor Ming of Mongo. He has captured a girl who is from the earth like myself. I live only to rescue her. An earth man, thou sayest. Yes. And an enemy of Ming the Merciless. That's right. Tell me, are you friend or enemy? I am Thun, Prince of the Lion Men. Hereditary enemies of the men of Mongo. If thou wilt accept me as thy friend, Earthman, I will gladly join thee against Ming the Merciless. Here's my hand on his entrance soon. Good. What is thy name, Earthman? I am called Flash Gordon upon the Earth, Your Highness. Call me soon, friend, and I will call thee Flash. Friend soon, you know how we can gain admittance to the palace that we may rescue Dale Arden? Come. I will show thee a secret way into the palace. Ah, good. The Emperor Ming is away pursuing my gyro fleet. We may be able to rescue the Earth Girl before Ming returns. Flash Gordon and his powerful newfound friend go first to the space gyro of Prince Thune, and there they gaze intently into the thought projector, in which they not only see Dale Arden a captive, but they also have revealed to them a secret way reading, leading to the throne room of the palace. The secret passage is known as the Tunnel of Terror because of the deadly beasts which lie within its gloomy walls. Fighting each step of the way, Flash and his new friend Prince Thune finally find themselves within the palace. A door with great steel bolts stands before them. Quick, Thune! This door must lead directly into the center of the palace. From my memory of the palace, I should say that beyond this door is the great throne room of the Emperor Ming. All right, then. Here we go. Ah, there. All right, Thun. It is the throne room. Yes. 
This great statue before us is the God of Death, which stands at the top of the altar steps, directly behind the throne of the Emperor. Listen. Who's that? By the great God Tao. It is a royal wedding procession. Ming the Merciless is taking another bride. Coming up the altar steps soon. I'm going to look around the idol. To look around the idol means death. Thou must not. Come back. Come back, friend. Soon. Save yourself. I'm going to the rescue of my earth friend, Dale Arden. He's being forced into a marriage with Ming the Merciless. Prince Thun of the Lion Men does not save himself at the expense of his friends. If thou must die, I will die fighting with thee. Dale! This way, Dale! This way, Dale! Down this passage, Earth Maiden, as fast as thou canst run. Quick, Thun, they're swarming up the other side. Help me topple the idol over on them. Now, one, two, three. With a grinding crash, the giant idol topples over on the onrushing soldiers of Ming the Merciless, killing those in front and throwing into confusion the whole company. Flash Gordon and Prince Thun, with Dale between them, dash into the secret passage beneath the idol. The way becomes steeper. They slip and fall down, down, a hundred feet or more into a whirling underground river. They're swept along down a raging current and over a falls into a lake. With the powerful strokes of the champion swimmer, Flash sets out for the shore, towing Dale by the hair. They reach the shore, and as Flash reaches down to drag Dale to safety, she screams and disappears beneath the calm surface of the lake, clutched in two powerful green scaly arms. With no thought of his own safety, Flash Gordon dives to Dale's rescue and finds an adventure stranger than any which has gone before. Follow the thrilling adventures of Flash Gordon and Dale Arden each Sunday in your Hearst Sunday newspaper. You will find them graphically portrayed in full-colored pictures in the Comic Weekly. Only in the Comic Weekly can you follow the escapades of the Captain Yammer Kids, those perennial rascals, or thrill to the adventures of King of the Royal Mountains. Only in the Comic Weekly can you enjoy the good, clean fun of bringing up Father, Tilly the Toiler, Way Out West, The Little King, or in the language of his hillbilly friend, go clean catawampus over the bodacious goings-on of Barney Google. Your old friend Skippy and all his little pals are waiting for you in the Comic Weekly, along with Pinky, Molly, and Pat in their great adventure story, Radio Patrol. Then there is Ace Drummond, the Demon Aviator, Johnny Round the World, and many, many others. Be sure you get this big 32-page all-color Comic Weekly supplement with your copy of next Sunday's Hearst newspaper. And don't fail to listen again next week to the continuation of the amazing interplanetary adventures of Flash Gordon and Dale Arden.
For a Christian sci-fi with adventure, drama, and a touch of romance, read Quantum Spacewalker, Anira's Assignment. Anira Henderson was used to dealing with every kind of trauma in her job as an emergency room tech. Then, the disaster that wiped out her family, except for her brother Jarl, landed tragedy squarely on her own lap. In the midst of her grief, she is recruited to join an elite force of universe healers. Fixing radically broken things has always been her life's dream. But, this just took it to a whole new level. Read Quantum Spacewalker, and Nira's Assignment by Grace S. Gross. Titan. Foundation. Foundation and Empire. Second Foundation. Author. Isaac Asimov. Part number one. Part title. Psychohistory and Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia Galactica, 116th edition. Entry. Hardy Selden. Born the 11,988th year of the Galactic Era. Died 12,069. Birthplace, Helicon, Arcturus Sector. He showed amazing ability in mathematics at a very early age. Anecdotes concerning his ability are innumerable and some contradictory. Undoubtedly his greatest contributions were in the field of psychohistory. Selden found the field little more than a set of vague axioms. He left it a profound statistical science. The best existing authority we have for the details of his life is the biography written by Gal Dornick, who, as a young man, met Selden two years before the great mathematician's death. The viewing room will be closed for the remainder of the trip. Prepare for landing, please. Would it be possible for me to stay? I would like to see Trantor. We'll be landing on Trantor by morning. I mean, I want to see it from space. I'm afraid not. If this were a space yacht, we might manage it, but we're spinning down Sunside. You wouldn't want to be burnt, blinded, and radiation scarred all at the same time, would you? I see. Trantor would only be a grey blur anyway. Hmm. Look, why don't you take a space tour once you get there? They're quite cheap. I will. Thank you. third left. Thank you. Next. Is that him? Yes. Good. Uh, taxis to the right and third left. Where to? Uh, come on, where to? 
A good hotel, please. They're all good. Name one. Well, the nearest one, please. 1.12. Where do I go? Follow the light track. Your ticket will keep going as long as you're going the right direction. Encyclopedia Galactica, 116th edition, entry, Tranitor. Center of the Imperial Government for unbroken hundreds of generations. Located in the central regions of the galaxy, among the most densely populated and industrially advanced worlds of the system. Land surface, 19,230,000,000 hectares, totally urbanized. Population, 40 billions, devoted almost entirely to the administrative necessities of the empire. Its dependence upon the outer worlds for food and indeed all the necessities of life made it increasingly vulnerable to conquest by siege. In the last millennium of the empire, imperial policy became little more than the protection of Trantor's delicate jugular vein. Obviously, your first visit to Trantor. What do you think of it? I don't know what to say. I've seen nothing like it before. I'll need time to soak it all in before I can give an opinion. This must seem a bit stupid to you. Trantorians must take it all for granted. Trantorians never come up here. It gives them nerves. Nerves? Why on earth should it do that? If you're born in a cubicle, grow up in a corridor, work in a cell and holiday in a sunroom, then coming up into the open with nothing but sky over you might conceivably give you a nervous breakdown. How high do you think we are? I don't know. A thousand meters? No. Just a hundred and fifty. What? But the lift took ages. I know. But it spent most of the time just getting up to ground level. Trantor is tunnelled over 1,500 metres down. It's like an iceberg. Nine-tenths of it is out of sight. You here on holiday? Not exactly. I've always wanted to visit Trantor, but I've come primarily for a job. Oh? With Dr. Selden's project at the University of Trantor. Raven Selden? No, Hari Selden, the psychohistorian. I don't know of any Raven Selden. Hari's the one I mean. We call him Raven because he keeps predicting disaster. What kind of disaster? What kind would you think? I'm afraid I wouldn't have the slightest idea. I've read the papers Dr. Selden has published, but they're on mathematical theory. Yes. The ones they publish. Look, I... I think I'd better go now. Very pleased to have met you. doing in my room? I am Harry Selden. Good afternoon, sir. I... You didn't think we were to meet before tomorrow? No, sir. 
Well, it's just that if we're to use your services, we must work quickly. I didn't understand. Well, just relax and sit down. Thank you. You were talking to a man on the observation tower, were you not? Yes. I met him in the lift. His name is Jerrill. He's an agent from the Commission of Public Safety. He followed you from the spaceport. But why? Did he say nothing about me? He referred to you as Raven Seldon. Did he say why? He said that you predict disaster. I do. What does Trantor mean to you? Glorious. You say that without thinking. What of psychohistory? Psychohistory. That branch of mathematics that deals with the reactions of human conglomerates to fixed social and economic stimuli. Assumptions. One, the human conglomerate be sufficiently large for valid statistical treatment. Two, the human conglomerate is itself unaware of psychohistorical analysis in order that its reactions be truly random. I hadn't thought of applying it to the problem. Before you've done with me, you'll have learned to apply psychohistory to all problems as a matter of course. Now then, you see the function set up on the calculator? Yes. Well, that represents the condition of the empire at the moment. Surely it's not a complete representation. No, not complete. I'm glad to see you don't accept my word blindly. However, this is an approximation which will serve to demonstrate the proposition. Will you accept that? Subject to my later verification of the derivation of the function, yes. Good. Now, add to this the known probability of imperial assassination, vice-regal revolt, the contemporary recurrence of periods of economic depression, the declining rate of planetary explorations. You see, incidentally, the new symbols on the calculator? Yes. Now, this is Trantor five centuries from now. How do you interpret this function? Total destruction. But that's impossible. You're right. You saw how the result was arrived at. Now, forget the symbolism for the moment and put it into words. As Trantor becomes more specialised, it becomes more vulnerable, less able to defend itself. Mm. Further, as it becomes more and more the centre of empire, it becomes a greater prize. Yes. As the imperial succession becomes more and more uncertain and the feuds among the great families more rampant, Social responsibility disappears. Right. Now, what of the probability of destruction within five centuries? Oh, come on. Surely you can perform a field differentiation without the calculator. About 85%? Not bad. But not good enough. The actual figure is 92.5%. Raven Selden. I haven't seen any of this in your journals. Of course not. This is unprintable. You suppose the Imperium could expose its shakiness in this manner? Some of our results have leaked out among the aristocracy. That's bad. Not necessarily. All is taken into account. Then is that why I'm being investigated? Yes, everything about my project is being investigated. Are you in danger? Oh, yes. There is a probability of 1.7% that I will be executed, but that, of course, would not stop the project. We've taken that into account as well. Never mind. You will meet me, I suppose, at the university tomorrow. I will, sir. Well, goodbye.
Yes? Carl Dornick. Yes? I have to inform you that you are under detention at the order of the Commission for Public Safety. You will remain in your room until we are ready for your interrogation. Sit down, Dr. Dornick. Thank you. You smoke if you wish. Now then, where do you come from, Dr. Dornick? I'm from Synax. I see. Now, I see from these papers that you are to join Dr. Sultan's staff. That's correct. I should be there now. Yes, I know. But why were you invited to join the staff? I'm not too sure, really. I, I got the invitation after receiving my doctorate in mathematics. What are to be your duties? I haven't the faintest idea. I expect I shall be informed when I get to the university. Well, then, let me put it another way. What secret instructions have you received? I don't know what you're talking about. I've had no instructions at all, either secret or not. When will Trantor be destroyed? I beg your pardon? I said, when will Trantor be destroyed? I couldn't say, of my own knowledge. Could you say of anyone's? How could I speak for another? Has anyone told you of such destruction set a date? You have been followed, Doctor. We were at the airport when you arrived, on the observation tower when you waited for your appointment, and, of course, we were able to overhear your conversation with Dr. Selden. Then you know his views on the matter. Perhaps. But we would like to hear them from you. He is of the opinion that Trantor will be destroyed within five centuries. He proved it, mathematically? Yes, he did. And you maintain the mathematics to be valid? If Dr. Selden vouches for it, then it is valid. Then we will return. Wait. I have a right to a lawyer. I demand my rights as an imperial citizen. And you shall have them. Yes? I am Laws Abertin. Dr. Selden has directed me to represent you. Is that so? Well, then, look here. I demand an instant appeal to the Emperor. I'm being held without cause. I'm innocent of anything. You've got to arrange a hearing with the Emperor instantly. The Commission will, of course, have a spy beam on our conversation. It's against the law, but they will have one, nevertheless. However, this recorder has the additional property of completely blanketing any spy beam. They won't discover it at once. Then I can speak? Of course. I want a hearing with the Emperor. There are no hearings before the Emperor. Trantor is, I'm afraid, in the hands of the aristocratic families, members of which compose the Commission for Public Safety, a development which was well predicted by psychohistory. Indeed. In that case, if Dr. Selden can predict the history of Trantor 500 years into the future... He can predict it 1,500 years into the future. I don't care if it's 15,000. Why couldn't he yesterday have predicted the events of this morning and warned me? Dr. Selden was of the opinion that you would be arrested this morning. What? Look, will you send Dr. Selden to me? Unfortunately, I can't. Dr. Selden is himself under arrest. You will be tried together. Selden. How many men are now engaged upon the project of which you are head? Fifty mathematicians. Including Dr. Gal Dornick? Dr. Dornick is the fifty-first. Oh. We have fifty-one, then. 
Search your memory, Dr. Selden. Perhaps there are 52 or 53, or perhaps even more. Dr. Dornick has not yet formally joined my organization. When he does, the membership will be 51. It is now 50, as I have said. Not perhaps nearly a hundred thousand. Mathematicians? No. I did not say mathematicians. Are there a hundred thousand in all capacities? In all capacities, your figure may be correct. Maybe. I say it is. I say that the men in your project number 98,572. I believe you're counting women and children. 98,572 individuals is the intent of my statement. There is no need to quibble. I accept the figure. Can the future be changed, Dr. Sutton? Obviously. Can the overall history of the human race be changed? Yes. Easily? With great difficulty. Why? The psychohistoric trend of a planet full of people contains a huge inertia. To be changed, it must be met with something possessing a similar inertia. So, Tranton need not be ruined if a great many people decide to act so that it will not. That is right. As many as a hundred thousand people? That is far too few. You're sure? But perhaps a hundred thousand people can change the trend if they and their descendants labor for five hundred years. Five hundred years is too short. In other words, Dr. Selden, they cannot prevent the destruction of Trenton no matter what they do. You are unfortunately correct. And on the other hand, your hundred thousand are intended for no illegal purpose. Exactly. In that case, Dr. Selden, what is the purpose of your hundred thousand? To minimize the effects of that destruction. And what exactly do you mean by that? The explanation is simple. The coming destruction of Trantor is not an event in itself, isolated in the scheme of human development. It will be the climax to an intricate drama which was begun centuries ago and which is accelerating in pace continuously. I refer, gentlemen, to the developing decline and fall of the Galactic Empire. Dr. Selden, you are speaking of an empire that has stood for 12,000 years. Is it not obvious to everyone that the empire is as strong as it ever was? Mr. Advocate, the rotten tree trunk, until the very moment when the storm blast breaks it in two, has all the appearance of strength that it ever had. We are not here, Dr. Selden, to The empire to... will vanish, and all its good with it. Its accumulated knowledge will decay, and the order it has imposed will vanish. Interstellar wars will be endless. Interstellar trade will decay. Population will decline. Worlds will lose touch with the main body of the galaxy. And so matter will remain. Forever? Psychohistory which can predict the fall, can make certain statements concerning the succeeding Dark Ages. The Empire, gentlemen, has stood 12,000 years. 
The dark ages to come will endure not 12, but 30,000 years. A second empire will rise, but between it and our civilization will be 1,000 years of suffering humanity. We must fight that. How do you propose to do this? By saving the knowledge of the race. If we now prepare an encyclopedia of all knowledge, it will never be lost. Coming generations will build on it and will not have to rediscover it for themselves. One millennium will do the work of 30,000. Oh, all my project, my 30,000 men with their wives and children are devoting themselves to the preparation of an encyclopedia galactica. They will not complete it in their own lifetime. I will not even live to see it fairly begun. But by the time Trantor falls, it will be complete, and copies will exist in every major library in the galaxy. That is all, Dr. Sud. You may stand down. Dr. Seldom, this is a pleasure. Please sit down. Thank you, Commissioner Chen. Now then, what can I do for you? You asked me to come and see you. Ah, yes, so I did. My lawyer is not present. This is no longer a trial, Dr. Seldom. We are only here to discuss the safety of the state. You disturb the peace of the Emperor's realm. Can you tell me why I may not rid myself both of you and an uncomfortable and unnecessary five-century future which I shall never see by having you executed tonight? A week ago you might have done so and perhaps retained the one in ten probability of yourself remaining alive at year's end. Today the one in ten probability is scarcely one in ten thousand. How so? The fall of Trantor cannot be stopped, but it can easily be hastened. The news of my interrupted trial would spread throughout the galaxy. Frustration of my plans to lighten the disaster would convince people that the future holds no promise for them. The feeling would grow that only what a man can grasp for himself at the moment would be of any account. Ambitious men, unscrupulous men will not wait. By their every action, they would hasten the decay of the world. Have me killed now, and Trantor will fall, not within five centuries, but within fifty years, and you yourself within a single year. Those are words to frighten children. However, your death is not necessarily the only answer that would satisfy us. Tell me, would your only activity be that of preparing the encyclopedia of which you spoke? Yes. And need that be done on Trantor? Trantor, my lord, possesses the Imperial Library as well as the scholarly resources of the University of Trantor. And yet if you were located elsewhere, let us say upon a planet where your men could devote themselves entirely and single-mindedly to their work, might not that have advantages? Minor ones, perhaps. Such a world has been chosen where you may work, Doctor, at your leisure with your hundred thousand about you. The galaxy will know that you are working and fighting the fall. 
They will even be told that you will prevent the fall. I see. The alternative is death for yourself and as many of your followers as will seem necessary. The opportunity for choosing between death and exile is given you over a time period stretching from this moment to one five minutes hence. Which is the world chosen, my lord? It is called, I believe, Terminus. It is uninhabited, but quite habitable, and can be molded to suit the necessities of scholars. It is somewhat secluded. And the edge of the galaxy. As I said, somewhat secluded. It will suit your concentration. We will need time to arrange such a trip. There are 20,000 families involved. You will be given time. Dr. Selden. Yes? I have been instructed to inform you that from now on you and all your people are under martial law and that six months will be allowed you for preparations to leave Trantor. Thank you, Captain. Six months? Now we can talk at our ease. But, Doctor, what can be done in six months? Six months will be quite enough. I don't see how. In a plan such as mine, other people's actions and wishes must be bent to our needs. The trial was not allowed to begin until the circumstances were right. But could you have arranged... To be exiled to Terminus? We've been preparing to leave for two years. Of course, we couldn't be certain that it would be Terminus that Chen would choose. But we hoped it might be, and we acted on that hope. But why, Dr. Selden? May I not know? Not yet. It is enough for the moment that you know that a scientific refuge will be established on Terminus. And another will be established at the other end of the galaxy. At Star's End. And as for the rest, you will see more than I. My doctors tell me that I cannot live more than a year or two. That I have accomplished in life what I intended. And under what circumstances may one better die? And after you die? There will be successors. Perhaps even yourself. I don't understand. You will. Most will leave for Terminus. But some will stay. It will be fairly simple to arrange. But as for me... I am finished. <laughs> Encyclopedia Galactica, 116th edition, entry, Terminus. The location of Terminus was an odd one for the role that it was called upon to play in galactic history, and yet in many ways an inevitable one. On the very fringe of the galactic spiral, an only planet of an isolated sun, poor in resources and negligible in economic value, it was never settled in the five centuries after its discovery until the landing of the encyclopedists. But within 50 years, as a new generation grew, it was inevitable that Terminus would become more than a mere appendage of the psycho-historians of Trantor. With the Anacreonian revolt came the rise to power 
of the first of the great line of mares, Salvo Hardin. Hardin, what is the matter with you? For the last six months, you've been getting edgier and edgier. Just a growing feeling that everything isn't going the way that it should be. Look, Lee, it's 50 years now since Selden and Dornick dispatched our fathers to Terminus, and in all that time, we've never had any real idea of our reason for being here. To compile the encyclopedia against the destruction of the Empire. That's what we're told. But I'm none too certain. Hmm. Selden must have intended us to do more than that. The population's growing, and all of it can't be used by the Foundation. Furthermore, the Empire doesn't seem to care about us. And now that the province of Anacreon has revolted against it, and furthermore defeated Smyrno in open battle, we are in a bad position. You worry unnecessarily. The Board of Trustees knows what it's doing. You think so? Of course. I wish I shared your confidence. Well, if you're worried about the situation, why don't you go and see the chairman of the board? Well, after all, as mayor, you have some authority. That's just the point. As mayor, I have no real authority oh, at all. Oh, really? Oh, I... I admit that I deal with problems of taxation, agricultural policy, and so forth. But the major decisions, the ones that affect the state, are taken by the board of trustees. My word carries no weight whatsoever with them. Nevertheless, I think they'd listen to you. Would they? Well, Louis Piren is a reasonable man. Louis Piren is a fool. Oh. He can't see anything unless it's under his nose. Totally absorbed with the problems of producing their blasted books. He's not interested in anything except the encyclopedia. Uh. Anyway, I'll do as you advise. I'll go and see him tomorrow. Good. I feel sure he'll listen to you. He'd better do a damn sight more than that. If not, we shall have to try other tactics. The situation cannot be allowed to continue as it is. What's your problem? The royal governor of the province of Anacreon has assumed the title of king. Well, what of it? Now, that means we are cut off from the inner regions of the empire. Is that so important? Important. Anacreon stands square across our last remaining trade route. Where is our metal to come from? Peren, this is a matter of life and death. The planet Terminus by itself cannot support a mechanized civilization. You know that. Yes, yes. There hasn't a trace of iron, copper, or aluminium in any of the surface rocks. And precious little else. What do you think will happen to the encyclopedia if Anacreon clamps down on us? Are you forgetting that we are under the direct jurisdiction of the emperor himself? So was Anacreon. And that's not all. At least another 20 of the outermost provinces of the galaxy have begun steering things their own way. I tell you, I feel damned uncertain of the Empire and its ability to protect us. Nonsense, royal governor or king. What's the difference? Forget it, Hardin. It's none of our business. We are first and last scientists, and our concern is the encyclopedia. Oh, yes, I almost forgot, Hardin. Mm. Do something about that newspaper of yours. It isn't mine. It's it... privately owned. What's it been doing? For weeks now, it's been recommending that the 50th anniversary of the Foundation be made the occasion for public holidays and quite inappropriate celebrations. And why not? In three months, the radium clock will open the first vault. I'd call that quite a big occasion, wouldn't you? Not for silly pageantry, Hardin. The first vault and its opening concerns the Board of Trustees alone. 
Anything of importance will be communicated to the people by me. I am the Emperor's representative on Terminus and have full powers in this respect. I see. Well, Pirelli, in connection with your status as Emperor's representative, then, I have a final piece of news to give you. About an acrium? Yes. A special envoy, Anselm Roderick, is being sent to us in two weeks. An envoy here? From an acrium? What for? I'll give you one guess. all the formal discussions, the paper signing and such dull technicalities, that is, will take place before the... Uh, uh, what is it you call your council? The Board of Trustees. Oh, name. Anyway, that's for tomorrow. But we might as well clear some of the underbrush man-to-man right now, though. Don't you agree? And that means... Just this. There's been a certain change out here in the periphery, and the status of your planet has become a trifle uncertain. It would be very convenient if we succeeded in coming to an understanding as to how the matter stands. Let me understand this, Your Eminence. Your mission is merely one of uh, clarification. That's correct. In that case, it's soon over. We are a state-supported scientific institution and part of the Emperor's personal domain. That's a nice theory, Dr. Perrin, but what's the actual situation? Hmm? How do you stand with respect to Smyrna? You're not 50 parsecs from their capital, you know. And uh, what about Conom and Daribo? We have nothing to do with any province. They're not provinces, they are kingdoms now. Kingdoms, then. We have nothing to do with them. As a scientific institution... Science be damned. The devil has that got to do with the fact that we're liable to see Terminus taken over by Smyrno at any time. And the emperor. He would just sit by. Well, now, Dr. Peren, you respect the emperor's property, and so do I. But Smyrno might not... Remember, we've just signed a treaty with the Emperor, which places upon us the responsibility of maintaining the borders of the old province of Anacreon on behalf of the Emperor. Our duty is clear, then, is it not? Certainly. But Terminus is not part of the province of Anacreon. And Smyrno? Nor is it part of the province of Smyrno. It is not part of any province. Does Smyrno know that? I don't care what it knows. But we do. We've just finished a war with her, and she still holds two stellar systems that are ours. Terminus occupies an important strategic position between the two nations. Uh, what is your proposition, Your Eminence? <laughs> it seems perfectly obvious that since Terminus cannot defend itself, Anacreon must take over the job. We believe that it would be best for all concerned to have Anacreon establish a military base here. And that is all you would want? A military base in some of the vast unoccupied territories? Well, of course, there would be the question of supporting the occupying forces. Oh, I see the terminus is to be a protectorate and pay tribute. Not tribute, taxes. We're protecting you, you pay for it. Whatever. Let me speak, Hardin. Your Eminence, I don't give a damn for Anacreon, Smyrno, your local politics and petty wars. I tell you, this is a tax-free, state-supported institution. State-supported? But we are the state and we are not supporting. Your Eminence, I am the direct representative of his, his august... august majesty, the Emperor. I am the direct representative of the King of Anacreon, and Anacreon is a lot nearer, Dr. Perrin. Gentlemen, let's get back to business. Yeah, how would you take these so-called taxes, Your Eminence? Wheat, potatoes, vegetables, cattle? You're joking. Gold, of course. Chromium or vanadium would be even better if you had it. Chromium? Vanadium? We, we haven't even got iron. Here, take a look at our currency. What is it? Steel? That's right don't understand. The Terminus is a planet practically without metals. 
We import it all. Well, you might pay with land. What do you mean? This world is just about empty, and the unoccupied land is probably fertile. We could doubtless come to some mutually satisfactory agreement. Anacreon could supply us with plutonium for our atomic power plant. We have only a few years' supply left. Harding, you have atomic power? Well, certainly. Well, what's unusual in that? I imagine that atomic power is 50,000 years old now. Why shouldn't we have it? Except that it is a little difficult to get hold of plutonium. Yes. Yes. Uh, now, gentlemen, tomorrow I shall meet your board of trustees. For your own sakes, I would advise you to appraise them of the situation prior to my arrival. Should we not reach a mutually beneficial arrangement, I have to tell you that I shall return to Anacreon, and from then you will have precisely three months before I return with my troops, wanted or not. And now, if you'll excuse me, I wish you good night, gentlemen. He is insufferable. Not at all. Merely the product of his environment. What did you mean by all that talk about military bases and tribute? Are you mad? No. I merely gave him the opportunity to talk. You'll notice he managed to stumble out Anacreon's real intention. And naturally, I don't intend to let that happen. Don't you? And who the hell are you? And may I ask why you mentioned our atomic power plant? It's just the thing that would make us a military target. Yes, a military target to avoid. Isn't it obvious why I brought the subject up? It confirmed a very strong suspicion I had. What? That Anacreon no longer has atomic power. If they had, Roderick would have known that plutonium, except in ancient traditions, and used in power plants. And therefore it follows that the rest of the periphery no longer has it either. Certainly Smyrno hasn't. Or they would have defeated Anacreon in their last little encounter. Interesting. Back to oil and coal, are they? Gentlemen, I think you all know our mayor, Salvo Hardin. Hardin, may I introduce the members of the board of trustees? Thomas Soot. Hardin. Njord Farah. Hardin. Lundin Krast. Hardin. And Yate Fulham. Hardin. Now then, gentlemen, I find it very gratifying to be able to inform the board that since our last meeting, I have received word that Lord Dorwin, Chancellor of the Empire will arrive at Terminus in two weeks. It may be taken for granted that our relations with Anacreon will be smoothed out to our complete satisfaction as soon as the Emperor is informed of the situation. Leaving vague expressions out of account, what do you expect Lord Darwin to do? It is quite evident that Mayor Hardin is a professional cynic. Ah, he can scarcely fail to realize that the Emperor would be most unlikely to allow his personal rights to be infringed. Why? What would he do if they were? Yeah, I'd like to ask a question. Besides this stroke of diplomacy, has anything been done to meet the Anacreonian menace? Oh, you see a menace there, do you? Don't you? Well, hardly. The Emperor... Is what is this? Be... Every once in a while, someone mentions... Emperor empires, as if they were magic words. The emperor is 50,000 parsecs away, and I doubt whether he gives a damn about us. No. We have to fight with guns, <laughs> not words. Yes. We've had two months' grace so far, mainly because we've given Anacreon the idea that we have atomic weapons, which, as we all know, isn't true. It's all very well to drag chancellors into this, but it'd be much nicer to drag in a few great big siege guns armed with atomic warheads. No, no I agree, agree with that. 
building armaments would mean withdrawing men from the encyclopedia. Mm. That cannot be done, come what may. Very true. The encyclopedia first, always. Why, in five years' time, we shall be publishing the first volume. Nothing must be allowed to interfere with that. Has it ever occurred to this board that it's just possible that Terminus may have interests other than the encyclopedia? You don't understand the situation. There's a good million of us here. And not more than 150,000 are working directly on the encyclopedia. To the rest of us, this is home. We were born here. We're living here. Compared with our homes, our farms, our factories, the encyclopedia means little to us. We want them protected. The encyclopedia first. Mm. We have a mission to fulfill. That might have been true 50 years ago, but there is a new generation. That has nothing to do with it. We are scientists. You are not scientists. You're clerks, classifying the work of scientists of the last millennium. Have you ever thought of extending their knowledge? No. You're quite happy to stagnate like the rest of the galaxy. That's why we have revolts, breakdown of communications, loss of atomic power. The whole galaxy is crumbling to bits. I don't know what you're trying to gain by your hysterical statements, Hardy. Certainly you're adding nothing constructive to the discussion. Haven't we forgotten something, gentlemen? What? In a month, we celebrate our 50th anniversary. What of it? On that anniversary, Harvey Selden's vault will open. Have you ever considered what might be in the vault? I don't know. Routine matters, a stock speech of congratulations. I don't think any great significance need be placed on the vault. Ah, but perhaps you're wrong. Doesn't it strike you that the vault is opening at a very convenient time? A very inconvenient time, you mean. We have other things to worry about. Other things more important than a message from Harry Selden? I think not. The encyclopedia was very dear to his heart, you know. Well, yes, yes, true. True. Mr. Mayor, hmm. what do you think of the vault? I don't know, Father. I really don't know. <laughs> You were looking for us, no doubt. A great achievement, this encyclopedia of yours, Hardin. Thank you, my lord. The section on archaeology is marvellous, truly marvellous. Uh, you're not by any chance interested in archaeology yourself, are you, Hardin? No, my lord, I can't say I am. Oh, pity, it's a fascinating subject. I've done an awful amount of work in the science, extremely well read, in fact. I've gone through all of them. Jordan, Obijasi, Lamech, now Lamech for instance. He presents a new and most interesting addition to my knowledge of the origin question. He tries to show that archaeological remains on the third planet of the Arcturian system show that humanity existed there before there were any indications of space travel. Really? But I must read it closely and weigh the evidence before I can say for certain. Why not go to Arcturus and study the remains for yourself? Whatever for, my dear fellow? <laughs> to get the information first-hand, of course. Oh, but where's the necessity? It seems an uncommonly roundabout way of getting anywhere. How insufferably crude it would be to go to Arcturus and blunder about when the old masters have covered the ground so much more effectively than we could possibly hope to do. I see. My lord, may I ask you a question? Oh, certainly, my dear fellow. Only too happy to be of service. My store of knowledge is small. Well, it isn't I... exactly about archaeology. Oh, well, never mind. Uh, what is it? Well, last year we received news here on Terminus of an explosion of a power plant on Planet 5 of Gamma Andromeda. Uh, yes. We got only the barest details of the accident. 
I wonder if you could tell me exactly what happened. Well, there wasn't very much to tell. The plant exploded. It was quite a catastrophe, you know. I believe several million people were killed and at least half the planet was laid in ruins. Yes, but what was wrong with the plant? Uh, well, really, who knows? It, it had broken down some years previously and it's thought that the replacements and repair work were inferior. It's so difficult to get technicians now who really understand these things. You realise that the independent powers of the periphery have lost atomic power altogether? I'm not at all surprised. Barbarous planets. Oh, but my dear fellow, you mustn't call them independent. They aren't, you know. They acknowledge the sovereignty of the Empire. They'd have to, of course, or we wouldn't treat with them. Well, that may be so, but they have considerable freedom of action. Yes, I suppose so, but that scarcely matters. The Empire's far better off with a periphery thrown upon its own resources. They're no good to us, you see. Barbarous planets. Quite uncivilized. Lee, this can't go on. This incredible vacillation on the part of the Board of Trustees. Not one of them seems capable of making a rational decision. And as for Lord Darwin, if they really think that either he or the word of the Empire count for anything, they must be even more insular than I suspected. Lord Darwin is a very accomplished diplomat. Precisely. Look, Lee, will you do something for me? What? Take these microtapes and have them subjected to a thorough analysis by symbolic logic. Can you do that? Yes. What do they contain? You'll see. Very well. When do you want the analysis? Tomorrow morning, when I meet the board. What will you say to them? That depends upon the result of the analysis. But if these tapes contain what I think they do, then I shall have no alternative but to assume power myself. Hardin, you're going to stage a coup and force the board of trustees out? No, Lee, not force them out. Simply supersede them. Someone has to have sole power when the crunch comes, and I'm better equipped than anyone else. Are you with me? Yes, Hardin, I'm with you. So, gentlemen, it turned out we didn't have much time after all. Lord Roderick gave us three months. But little as it was, we threw it away, unused. And this new Anacreonian ultimatum gives us one week. What do we do now? There must be a loophole. It is absolutely unbelievable that they would push matters to extremities in the face of what Lord Darwin has assured us regarding the attitude of the Emperor and the Empire. I see. You have, of course, informed the King of Anacreon of this uh, alleged attitude? I have, after having placed the proposal to the board for a vote and having received unanimous consent. And when did this vote take place? I don't believe that I am answerable to you in any way, Mayor Harding. All right. I'm not that vitally interested. It's just my opinion that it was your diplomatic transmission of Lord Darwin's valuable contribution to the situation that was the direct cause of this friendly little ultimatum. And just how do you arrive at that remarkable conclusion, Mr. Mayor? Quite simply, common sense. You see, there's a branch of human knowledge known as symbolic logic, which can be used to prune away all sorts of dead wood that clutters up human language. What about it? I applied it. Among other things, I applied it to this document here. 
I didn't really need to for myself because I knew what it was all about. But I think I can explain it more easily to five scientists by symbols rather than words. <laughs> this message from Anacreon was a simple problem, naturally. The men who wrote it were men of action rather than men of words. And it boils down quite simply to the straightforward and unqualified statement, you give us what we want within a week, or we beat the hell out of you and take it anyway. No loophole there, is there, Dr. Perret? There doesn't seem to be. All right. Before you now, you see a copy of the treaty between the Empire and the Nacre. As you see, gentlemen, something like 90% of the treaty cancels out in the analysis. And what we end up with can be described in the following interesting manner. Obligation of Anacreon to the Empire? None. Powers of the Empire over Anacreon? None. That seems to be correct. <coughs> you admit, then, that the treaty is nothing but a total declaration of independence on the part of Anacreon and a recognition of that status by the Empire? It seems so. And do you suppose that Anacreon doesn't realize that? That it would naturally tend to resent any appearance of threats from the Empire, particularly when it's evident that the Empire is powerless to carry out any such threats, or it would never have allowed independence? But then... How would you account for Lord Darwin's assurances of Empire support? You know, that's the most interesting part of the whole business. I thought his lordship an absolute ass when I first met him. But it turns out he was actually a most accomplished diplomat and a very clever man. I took the liberty of recording all his statements, and then I took them and had them analysed. And? After I'd succeeded in eliminating all the meaningless statements, vague gibberish, and useless qualifications, I found I had nothing left. Everything cancelled out. Lord Darwin, in five days of discussion, didn't say one damn thing. We have one week left. What do we do now? It seems that we have no choice but to allow Anacreon to establish military bases on Terminus. I agree with you there. But what do we do towards kicking them off again at the first available opportunity? That sounds as if you've made up your mind that violence must be used against them. Violence is the last refuge of the incompetent. But I certainly don't intend to put out the welcome mat and dust off the best furniture for them. I still don't like the way you put that. It is a dangerous attitude. Our policy has but one cardinal principle. And that is the encyclopedia. Whatever we decide to do or not to do will be decided because it will be the measure required to keep that encyclopedia safe. Then you have come to the conclusion that we must continue our intensive campaign of doing nothing. You have demonstrated that the Empire cannot help us, though how it can be so, I don't understand. If compromise... There is no so... compromise. Don't you realize that all this talk about military bases is utter nonsense? So we've gone quite far enough, I think. There seems no point in concealing that the board came to the decision that the real solution to the Anacreonian problem lies in what is to be revealed to us when the vault opens in six days from now. We are to do nothing, is that right, except to wait in quiet serenity and utter faith for the deus ex machina to pop out of the vault? Stripped of your emotional physiology, that is correct. Such subtle escapism. Really, Dr. Farrar, such folly smacks of genius. Would it surprise you to hear that I have given the matter considerable thought these last few weeks? With what result? With the result that pure deduction is found wanting. What is needed is a little sprinkling of common sense. 
Selden foresaw the Anacreonian threat. Why did he not have us placed in some other planet nearer the galactic center? Why put us here on Terminus? If he could see in advance the break in communications, our isolation from the Empire, the threat of our neighbors. If he could foresee the problem then, we should be able to find the solution now. But how did we come? But you haven't tried. You haven't tried once. First you refused to admit that there was a menace at all, and then you reposed the blind faith in the Emperor. Now you've shifted it to Hardy Selden. Throughout, you've invariably relied either on authority or on the past, never on yourselves, and that's wrong. We sit here considering the encyclopedia the be-all and end-all. We consider the greatest end of science is the classification of past data. It's important, Phyllis, that no further work to be done. We're receding and forgetting. Here in the periphery, they've lost atomic power. In Gamma Andromeda, a power plant's blown up because of poor repairs. And the chance of the Empire complains that atomic technicians are scarce on the solution? To train new ones? Never. Instead, they're to restrict atomic power. Don't you see it's a worship of the past? It's a deterioration? Stagnation? Well, philosophy isn't going to help us. Let us be concrete. Do you deny that Hardy Selden could easily have worked out historical trends of the future by simple psychological technique? No, of course not. But we mustn't rely on him for a solution. At best, he might indicate the problem. But if ever there's to be a solution, we must work it out ourselves. What do you mean, indicate the problem? We know the problem. You think you do. You think Anacron is all that Hardy Selden is likely to be worried about. I disagree. I tell you, gentlemen... But as yet, none of you has the faintest conception of what is really going on. Now, look. There must be no hesitation. Do you understand that, Lee? Mm. No time to allow them to grasp the situation. Once we're in a position to give orders, give them as they were born to do so, and they'll obey you out of habit. But if the board remained irresolute... After even... tomorrow, their position in the affairs of Terminus won't exist. You know, it's strange that they've done nothing to stop us so far. You say they weren't entirely in the dark. Father stumbled at the edges of the problem. And Perenne's been suspicious of me ever since I was elected. But you see, they never had the capacity of understanding what was really going on. Their whole training has been authoritarian. They're sure that the Emperor, just because he is the Emperor, is all-powerful. They're sure that the Board of Trustees acting in the name of the Emperor cannot be in a position where it cannot give the orders. And that incapacity to recognize the possibility of revolt is our greatest ally. They're not bad fellows, Lee. You're when they stick in the encyclopedia. And we'll see to it that that's where they do stick in the future. They're hopelessly incompetent when it comes to ruling Terminus. Anyway, you'd better go and start things rolling. Tomorrow in the time vault, we'll know what to expect. <laughs> Selden. I can't see you, so I can't greet you properly. If any of you are standing, please sit down. It is 50 years now since this foundation was established, 
50 years in which the members of the foundation have been ignorant of what it was they were working towards. It was necessary that they be ignorant, but now that necessity is gone. The encyclopedia is, and always has been, a fraud. It is a fraud in the sense that neither I nor my colleagues care at all whether a single volume of the encyclopedia is ever published. In the 50 years that you have worked on this fraudulent project, your retreat has been cut off, and you now have no choice but to proceed on the infinitely more important project that was, and is, our real plan. From now on, and into the centuries, the path that you must take is inevitable. You will be faced with a series of crises, as you are now faced with the first. And in each case, your freedom of action will become circumscribed, so that you will be forced along one and only one path. The path which our psychology has worked out. Somewhere in the 50 years just past, is where the historians of the future will place an arbitrary line and say, this marks the fall of the galactic empire. After this fall will come inevitable barbarism, a period which psychohistory tells us should last for 30,000 years. We cannot stop the fall, but we can shorten the period of barbarism. The ins and outs of that shortening we cannot tell you, just as we could not tell you the truth about the Foundation 50 years ago. Had you known the truth, your knowledge would have extended, your freedom of action expanded, and the additional variables would have been more than our psychology could handle. But this I can tell you. Terminus and its companion Foundation at the other end of the galaxy are to be the seeds and founders of the Second Galactic Empire. And it is the present crisis that is starting Terminus off towards that climax. This, by the way, is a rather straightforward crisis, much simpler than many of those that are ahead. Action is forced on you. The nature of that action, that is the solution to your dilemma, is, of course, obvious. But whatever course your future history may take, impress it always upon your descendants that the path has been marked out and that at its end is a new and greater empire. If you will see us tonight at six, the board will consult with you as to the next move. Encyclopedia Galactica, 116th edition. Entry, 
Board of Governors subscript. Samuel Harding's foresight meant that Lee's men were already in control and the board was giving orders no longer. And in six months, the Anacreonian invaders were also not giving orders. The solution to this first Selden crisis had been obvious. This was the beginning of the great line of the mayors. Title, Foundation. Foundation and Empire, Second Foundation. Author, Isaac Asimov. Audio adaptation, Patrick Tower. Part number one. Thank you for listening to the Strangers and Pilgrims podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's shows. Visit our website at www.strangerspilgrims.com.